Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com moments before the city released the video showing Officer Jason Van Dyke fatally shooting 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, Mayor Rahm Emanuel urged residents to stay calm. It is fine to be passionate, but it is essential that remain peaceful. We have a collective responsibility in the city of Chicago, the city we love, to ensure that this opportunity for healing begins now. Hours later, young black people took to the streets to honor McDonald and protest police brutality. Given the fever pitch nationally and previous rioting in Ferguson and Baltimore, some braced for an uprising in Chicago. Activist Veronica Morris-Moore says that's because black youth are stereotyped. She participated in the protest last night. I think people expect the Chicago to burst in flames because the dominant narrative out there is that black people are reckless and we don't care about communities and neighborhoods. I came from Birmingham, Alabama, but I came to Chicago for a better living and a job. I bought here at this house in 58. It ain't nothing to brag about, but it's mine. I moved in this house in 1957. It was mostly a white area. And when they said that the, the niggers was coming, they didn't say black, they said the niggers was coming. And uh, they start, just start moving away. The Aldgell Gardens public housing project sat at Chicago's southernmost edge. 2,000 apartments arranged in a series of two-story brick buildings with army green doors and grimy mock shutters. To the east, on the other side of the expressway, was the Lake Calumet landfill the largest in the Midwest. 
And to the north, directly across the street, was the Metropolitan Sanitary District's sewage treatment plant. The people of Odgeld couldn't see the plant or the open-air vats that went on for close to a mile. As part of a recent beautification effort, the district maintained a long wall of earth in front of the facility. But officials could do nothing to hide the smell, a heavy, putrid odor that varied in strength depending on the temperature and the wind's direction, and seeped through windows no matter how tightly they were shut. The stench, the toxins, the empty, uninhabited landscape. For close to a century, the few square miles surrounding Odgeld had taken on the offal of scores of factories, the price people had paid for their high-wage factory jobs. Now that the jobs were gone, and those people that could had already left, it seemed only natural to use the land as a dump. A dump and a place to house poor blacks. I wanted to put this question to Wendell Pierce. It was a piece that appeared in Chicago um, by an editorial board member of the Chicago Tribune. Um, her name was is Kristen McCreary. She wrote a piece about Chicago's um, financial crisis titled, In Chicago, Wishing for Hurricane Katrina. She wrote, quote, I find wishing for a storm in Chicago, an unpredictable, haughty, devastating swirl of fury, a dramatic levee break, geysers bursting through manhole covers, a sleeping city forced onto rooftops. She later apologized for offending the city of New Orleans. I see you have a new film coming out next month. Um, December 4th. December 4th. How do you say it? Chirac? Chirac? Chirac. Chirac. And the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, has gotten into it with you about the title equating Chicago with Iraq in any way. Did you consider changing the title? No. That's an emphatic no. Want to give our listeners a preview of that film? Any kind of verbal trailer? Well... I'll say this: We started shooting. We started shooting Chirac on the South Side of Chicago this past summer, summer 2015. Our first day of shooting was June 1st. First day of filming was June 1st. Last day of filming was July 9th. During that time, from the 1st of June to July 9th, 331 people wounded and shot, 65 murdered. New York City is three times the population of Chicago, yet Chicago is more homicides than New York City. I know people wouldn't usually rap this, but I got the facts to back this. Just last year, Chicago had over 600 caskets. Man, killing some whack shit. Oh, I forgot, except for when niggas is rapping. Do you know what it feel like when people is passing? He got changed over his chains, a block off Ashland. I need to talk to somebody, Pastor. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. How do you feel about this, Well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, November 26th, 
2015 so I have been told I hope folks made it through the day uh, with as little stress as possible uh, hope you had uh, if you participated in the madness or at least uh, used the time and you know hung out with family members and all that I hope there was no conflict uh, no arguments, no brawls <laughs> that you uh, were able to make constructive use uh, of the day and uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, having a fully constructive weekend. No shopping. Hopefully folks are not participating in any of that uh, madness going on tomorrow. But uh, we are glad you are here listening in and perhaps even you could get some of your relatives if you're around other family members and what have you. Other black people get them to tune in and get some constructive information on some of the problems we are facing as black people uh the audio clip that you heard at the beginning of the program uh just to make sure you're clear about all of the different voices that you heard in the segment uh obviously starting off with the situation in chicago right now attention focused on uh laquan mcdonald uh and the suspected race soldier jason van dyke who's been charged with first degree murder uh, and they were talking about uh folks not quote-unquote rioting uh in chicago you heard from mayor uh rahm emanuel suspected racist saying that people can be passionate as long as they do not get out of control uh the next segment uh ta Coates' his piece on reparations is focused a lot on chicago and the contract buying system where uh, whites were just absolutely fleecing uh, black Chicago residents. This went on for decades. Uh, it has a big part to explain why black Chicago looks the way it does today. Uh, the misery and terrorism that's reported all the time. But you heard directly from some of the uh, black people who got sucked into this uh, contract system where they were just taking their money and uh, making it very difficult for black people to own uh, houses uh, in Chicago. That was uh, Ethel Weatherspoon and Maddie Lewis, uh, where they were saying that they moved to Chicago, uh, one from Mississippi, and, and the white people, when they got there, the white oh my gosh, the niggas are coming. Uh, the next one in the segment, that was President Barack Obama. Uh, he actually read the audiobook for his autobiography, Dreams from My Father, where he was talking about how they had basically a toxic dump site to warehouse black Chicago residents. Uh, this is him talking about what he saw in the 80s, not ancient history, uh, just within the last 20 years, this is what he was saying that he saw uh, where it smelled really bad and it was just total waste and, oh, ideal spot to plop black people down. Uh, the next segment was uh, my BFF, Amy Goodman, uh, reading. She was talking about the article, the editorial that came out in the Chicago Tribune just a few months back uh, where this white woman was saying that she hoped that a Hurricane Katrina would come through Chicago. I heard that, you know, back when it came out, we talked about it then, but it sounded very different hearing it in the context of that audio clip at the beginning. Uh, Cause I definitely think there are many, many white people in Chicago who are saying, absolutely. Yes. It would be fantastic if we had something that could come through and sweep all of the Laquan McDonald's and Rakia Boyd's. If we could just sweep all these niggas away, the windy city would be great again. Uh, the next clip that was Spike Lee uh, talking about his documentary that's coming out next week. Uh, Chirac and uh, the final clip was Dr. Martin Luther King in 1966 when he did uh, his infamous march in Chicago he was pelted with rocks they were throwing bricks uh, he commented about being stunned there were white people in the trees with swastikas and all kinds of signs uh, saying we are for white power nigger leave 
Uh, and I think just that statement at the end in 1966 for Dr. King to say uh, he's been in Alabama, he's been in Mississippi. And I mean, for full context for him in 1966 to say that. So this is after Emmett Till. This is after Medgar Evers. This is after the church was bombed in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. This was after James Meredith was shot in Mississippi. This was after his house was bombed in Alabama for all of the things that he's seen to say that he had never seen anything like the white supremacist violence and hate that he saw in Chicago. That should speak volume. The musical assist from Roy Ayers and Kanye West with that. Uh, I thought it would be grand uh, since we have one of our favorite guests is actually a Chicago native uh, to get her back on the program to hear her views. Always folks look forward to hearing from her and specifically with all the attention focused on Chicago right now would be grand to kind of get eyewitness uh, reports on what's going on and just her thoughts uh, on what's being reported, what she thinks about all this uh, and how we should understand and process this within the context of white supremacy. Uh, As I said, she's been on the program many, many, many times down through the years. Uh, Folks always really look forward to hearing uh, her views and really appreciate her being so generous and coming to hang out with us so many times. Uh, You can get more information. You can go to her blog, uh, the website, racismws.com. Racismws.com. Great information, blog posts, uh, other counter-racist resources. Uh, She has co-authored four different texts. Great information. I'm going to read a little bit from some today. Uh, They include Trojan Horse, Death of a Dark Nation, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, The Interracial Con Game, and The Beauty Con Game. Outstanding counter-racist material. Uh, I think Picking up any one of them is great. If you do have to participate in any of the nonsense with the holidays, they would make great gifts. Uh, You can pick up some of those and give out some constructive resources to any black people that you care about. I think that would be a fantastic idea. Again, you can go to the uh, website racismws.com. And as she regularly encourages, don't just be a spectator. If you get the book, if you've read the book or you end up reading the book after the program, write a review. It's really helpful. Go to Amazon.com and you can find the title of the book. Leave a review. That's very helpful if you got some constructive information that helps you get a better understanding of racism. As I said, one of our favorite guests, always a pleasure having her on the program and looking forward to getting into the dialogue. Joining us once again, Pam. Uh, are you with us, Pam? Yes, good evening, Gus. Good evening, Pam. Glad to have you back on the program. I hope we did not uh, disrupt your uh, turkey festivities and everything else that goes on with the day. But we are glad to hear from you again Um, for just for anybody. This might be we have new listeners and what have you. This might be their first time hearing from you. Uh, Anything that you uh, think folks should know about you before we get started? Uh, Well, just that I'm um, I'm a student, you know, of white supremacy uh, certainly not an expert. Um, I find that it's one of the most important discoveries that I've made in my life in terms of that it actually existed, the system of white supremacy. And I'm so grateful to all the people who made that possible. I, I, I thought about this the other day when I, uh, the person that introduced me to Neely Fuller. I wasn't even going to go to the website. This guy was in class with me in a class from my job, and he said, you know, we were talking, and he said, you ought to check out a counter-racism counter-racism.com, I think that's what it was. 
And I was thinking, like, you know, I ain't going to do that, you know. And finally, I did. He kept mentioning it, and I did. And that's when I came across, uh, that was my first introduction to Neely Fuller. And to the men that uh, that created the web the, uh, the website, Ed Williamson and, uh, I can't think, Josh Wickett. And I watched some of the videos, and I was just mesmerized because I was like, wow, you know, look at these guys. They're sitting here and they're saying things, and Mr. Fuller was saying things I had never heard before. So I just want to say I'm still uh, still in the process of learning. I'm taking two steps forward and one backward, and uh, that no one should. Uh, the only contribution I'm really trying to make is to encourage people to think for themselves. I'm not trying to tell people what to think, even though I would love to do that. The whole purpose of my having a blog and the books is to put some, put some food for thought out there and then hope that people will find an appetite for it. But at the end of the day, you still got to be able to think for yourself and you still got to follow the logic for yourself. Don't follow me. Mr. Fuller says don't follow him. Don't follow anybody because you never know when that person may mislead you accidentally or deliberately. So my whole thing is be your own leader. So that's what, they, that's what I would say uh, that, you know, if I was going to introduce the work that I'm trying to do, and that is I'm trying to present food for thought and hope that people will pick up the train of logic and follow it for themselves. RacismWS.com. More information. You can check, purchase uh, any of the books. They are in hard copy, or you can get the ebook, uh, and then you can also read the blogs uh, as well. And then you can also go back in the archives. And here she's been on the program many, many times. Uh, you can check out. We talked about all the books in detail and uh, other topics relating to white supremacy, racism. Um, before we get to Chicago, because um, we are going to spend a good chunk of time on that, but before we get to Chicago, um, I've been trying to bring it up as often as possible because uh, it just has not gotten adequate attention. Uh, and I think it's it's one of the most important events uh, of the year that people should be focusing on and, and getting details about uh, the trial of Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, former enforcement official in Oklahoma. Uh, he is facing 36 counts uh, of various types of sexual abuse, uh, sexually terrorizing black females exclusively uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, the trial is in the fourth week. Uh, this has been woefully covered uh, by mainstream media. They will spend every five minutes to talk about how bad Bill Cosby is uh, and any other black males, Tiger Woods, uh, Jameis Winston down at uh, Tampa Bay. Uh, when he was at Florida State, but now uh, in the NFL at Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, and even matter of fact, make sure I get it in, because I know some people are probably watching football. Uh, they spent today, oh, Brett Favre, we're going to put his name up in the ring of honor. It's great time. He was, this white man, when he left, he was facing all kinds of accusations that he had been sending all these inappropriate sex messages and sexually harassing different reporters uh, when he ended, ended his career, they have not said one word about that. I haven't heard any of these white feminists uh, coming out to say, wait a minute, uh, we are not going to honor Brett Favre. We're done with this. Women matter. We're done with this. We're, we're not honoring him. We're going to boycott the game. I haven't seen any of that. It's been a whole day of, yay, Brett Favre. This is the greatest white man ever. 
uh, just contrasting that with the treatment of all these different black males that they that were never even charged. Jameis Winston, not charged. Bill Cosby, not charged. To my knowledge, Tiger Woods, not charged of anything. But they talk about them as though they should be lynched and castrated today, maybe twice over. This guy, Daniel Holtzclaw, they have had practically no attention on it at all. And he was exclusively terrorizing black females. And I just before I get Pam's comment on on the trial, I wanted to go back to the interracial con game because you talk about this this topic in detail in the text. Uh, so this is chapter 10, page 171. Uh, Pam, she writes uh, the chapter is titled A Short History of the Rape of Black Females. Prior to 1972, rape was a capital crime that was punishable by death. More than 90% of the executions for rape involved black males who allegedly raped a white female, but statistics showed the vast majority of rapes in the U.S. involved white males raping black and white females. About 5% of executions for rape involved a black male who allegedly raped a black female, and approximately 2% of executions for rape involved a white male who allegedly raped a white female. A white male has never been executed for raping a black female in the history of the U.S. Because white males raping black females was not and still isn't considered a crime despite the overwhelming evidence. U.S. Senator Strom Thurmond, a white male and a staunch segregationist, never publicly acknowledged his illegitimate black daughter, Essie Mae Washington Williams, while she was alive. Miss Washington Williams' mother, Carrie Butler, a black maid who was only 15 at the time she gave birth, led many to believe she was the victim of rape. According to the book At the Dark End of the Street by Danielle L. McGuire, this was a tragically common fate or many black female children and women in the Deep South who had no legal protection against the sexual violence of white males. I was in the process of researching the 1959 gang rape of Betty Jean Owens, a black college student at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida, when I kept coming across similar cases of white men attacking black women throughout the Deep South. It seemed as if every front page of every black newspaper between 1940 and 1950 featured the same story. A black woman was walking home from school, work, or church when a group of white men abducted her at gunpoint, took her outside of town, and brutally assaulted her. This is Danielle McGuire, author of At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance. This is a suspected racist white woman, Danielle L. McGuire, but she also has been a guest on the program. We talked about that book extensively. I will stop there. Uh, do you have comments on this trial uh, of Daniel Holtzclaw and how this relates to what you uh, eloquently laid out in your text? Um, well, I haven't been following the trial. I did hear about it. Um, I personally... Uh, I'm not well. I'm not surprised that the media doesn't cover it because the whole one of the cornerstones of white supremacy, given that a lot of the origins of white supremacy in the United States have to do with slavery and the um, systematic rape of black women, children, and men, that 
the idea of acknowledging that black women could be raped pulls you back into history. And it also says if black women, if we acknowledge that black women can be victims of rape, then we have to acknowledge also that the rape of black women over a systematic period of 400-plus years, because we're talking about beyond slavery, because it didn't end after slavery. It continued on and continues on to this day. So if we acknowledge that they can be victims, then certainly we have to acknowledge that they were victims back in the beginning of American uh, slavery and all throughout slavery. That means our founding fathers were rapists. I hear a lot of white men online on YouTube talking about founding fathers. You know, a lot of them are protesting the changes in the government and the loss of freedoms and the attack on the Constitution and even protesting against the American aggression overseas. And they always go back. Every single one of them goes back to what the founding fathers were great men and how the founding fathers, if they, you know, we should hope, you know, we should uh, adhere to what they wanted for America and blah, blah, blah. And I listen to them and I say, yeah, that doesn't fit in with their mythology that the founding fathers were these courageous men, if they have to also acknowledge that the founding fathers were mass rapists, they were serial rapists, they were psychopaths, and they were sociopaths. They can't acknowledge that. So the key from ever acknowledging the European male's history with women of color, and particularly black women, they have to make black women unrapeable. If I make you unrapeable, then when I'm raping you, you wanted it, or you seduced me. And you see this theme, and I'm warning people, you've got to look at the television and the media and the movies today. They are nothing but vehicles for white supremacy. They don't even pretend not to be. Well, they do pretend not to be. But if you look at this, a common theme in most of the movies and TV shows today, the black female is always the sexual aggressor towards the white male. The white male never seduces or pursues black women. I don't care if it's a TV show. I don't care if she's got a bit role in a movie or a TV show. She is always coming on to a white male. The white male never pursues her. And I noticed this time after time. Scandal. I don't know how those two got started, and I don't care, but she's playing the role of a white man's whore. Let's be for real. He's a married white man who is having a thing on the side with a black female that he will never marry. So when you look at the roles of black females in today's television shows and movies, for the most part, it's that of a whore. So they have to keep this mythology alive about black women because if they ever acknowledge that black women are human and that we're rapeable and that we can't be victims, you've got to go all the way back in history and acknowledge what happened then. And they're not going to do that. So I think that this, this trial would be very interesting. I personally don't see this guy. I don't know what the maximum punishment is for rape in Oklahoma, in the state of Oklahoma, but I suspect if he's convicted, which is doubtful, that he's not going to get much time. Because, again, the system is based on maintaining itself. And if you, allow the, if you have policemen being punished for being foot soldiers and obeying the orders, the real orders of a police system within a black community, and that's terrorism, then you can't really use them effectively against black people. So I personally don't see this white male necessarily getting convicted. Oklahoma is a state... It's a state out of this world, but I can't see him getting convicted. And if he does get convicted, he probably won't do much time. Uh, 
Oklahoma. That is, uh, since Mr. Fuller was mentioned already, I think that is the state where he was born, uh, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. Um, Just to to round it out, because I know a lot of people have not been uh, keeping up, and this looking like it's going to be a longer trial. Uh, It's in the fourth week, and I don't even think they're in the halfway point. This easily could take up uh, two months. Uh, before they get to a conclusion and we find out what the verdict is going to be. Uh, but this was uh, is written uh, in an Oklahoma uh, news site. Uh, Kyle Schwab, he is a white man, suspected racist. Uh, he's been live tweeting uh, the trial every day, and he has an extensive write-up. If people want to go to his site and kind of catch up, you can also OKC Artists for Justice. Uh, we had uh, one of their representatives, Grace Franklin, on the program uh, twice already uh, to give us uh, – she's in Oklahoma City. They, too, have been at the trial and live tweeting and writing and uh, protesting, trying to get more attention to uh, the case. They also have posted a lot of information so you can get daily updates on what's happening with the case. Uh, But Mr. Schwab, this was written yesterday, his article, 10th accuser in ex-Oklahoma City cops trial testifies he threatened her with arrest if she didn't give him sex. And just for additional context uh, for this trial, it is an all white jury. Uh, There was a lot of attention focused on that at the beginning of the month uh, when they were deliberating about who was going to be deciding uh, Holtzclaw's fate, but all white jury. So the article, it reads. Uh, The 10th accuser in the trial against fired Oklahoma City police officer testified Wednesday he threatened her with arrest if she didn't submit to sex. He told me, I'm going to be serious with you. You're going to have to give me sex or I'm taking you to jail, the woman testified. The woman regularly wiped sweat from her forehead and tears from her eyes during the testimony. I thought I better do what he asked me or I was going to jail, she said. The former officer, Daniel Holtzclaw, 28, of Oklahoma City, is on trial in Oklahoma County District Court. He is charged with 36 counts, including six counts of first-degree rape. Prosecutors allege he sexually assaulted 13 black women between December 2013 and June 2014 while a police officer. He was fired in January. His accusers during the trial have described sexual offenses ranging from illicit touching over the clothes to forced oral sex and rape. Holtzclaw denies the allegations. Prosecutors allege the woman who testified Wednesday was sexually assaulted May 21, 2014. The woman testified Holtzclaw approached her in his patrol car as she was walking to a relative's house in northeast Oklahoma City. She said he asked her if she had any drugs on her and then put her in the back of his police car. The woman testified the interaction was early in the morning and she had been drinking the night before. She said she wasn't drunk, but Holtzclaw told her he smelled alcohol on her. She said he told her she could go to detox or jail. The woman said he then drove her to a secluded, trash-filled place in northeast Oklahoma City called Dead Man's Curve. There, Holtzclaw gave her the choice between jail and sex, she testified. The woman said she had to perform oral sex before the rape. He unzipped his pants and I gave him some oral sex. He said, get out of the car and pull your pants down, she testified. He told me to bend over the back seat. The woman said that after the sexual assault, 
Holtzclaw drove her around the corner and dropped her off. She said she told her boyfriend right after the abuse, but didn't tell the police. She said she couldn't call the police. I will stop right there uh, in this. This is the uh, 10th victim in this case, and there's been a pattern of the defense attacking these black females and saying, well, oh, you have a drug history. Uh, They tested one of the victims uh, and she tested positive for drugs the day that she testified and have pointed out that some of the victims that they have uh, criminal records. So they have used all of this to basically say that these are lying crackhead winches and you can't believe anything that they say. Uh, Any comments from what you've heard? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, that's something that also needs to be recognized is that the same kind of um, stigmatizing of that goes on with young black males goes on with young black females. The whole thing is to give you felonies uh, on, you know, give you a felony record so that anything that happens to you, you're instantly not credible. And he's done this with black men for a very long time. Um, You know, the, the whole legacy of rape, and this is what I believe. I believe in something called racial memory, and I talk about it in the second book, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. I believe there is such a thing as racial memory. I don't believe people are born with a blank slate. Uh, I don't believe that, you know, I believe the, the experiences of our ancestors are transmitted along to us through our DNA. And that a lot of the pain that I see in black women is not just from what is happening in our individual personal lives, but our whole legacy of mistreatment. And I think that when you look at a, a, a group of women and men, but let's just talk about the women for a minute. When you look at a group of women, and that's the one thing that separates a good woman from a bad woman is her sexual experiences. Women are categorized and forced into categories based on their sexual experience. Were they pure when they were young? What kind of, how did they lose their virginity? Who are they having sex with? All of this is cast dispersions upon our character as women. So when you've got a whole group of women who have been treated and viewed as having no integrity, as being whores, and then you've got that legacy of rape, it has done a tremendous amount of damage to black women's self-esteem in terms of whether or not being, anybody even believes that we're victims. They say that, I believe this, I know they had, this guy had a television, not a television show, a radio show years ago. He asked women to call in if they had been raped. And I caught the tail end of the show. And I do remember this one black female calling in. She looked like she, she sounded like she might have been in her 30s. And she was raped by a family acquaintance. And he said, didn't you, why didn't you report it? Because what he found was woman after woman after woman after woman was coming onto the program and saying they never told anybody. I even have a male friend that told me that he's talked to several, he's a type of person people can talk to very easily. He's heard the same story from countless women, that they've been raped and they've never reported it to the police, they never told anyone. And so this particular uh, radio show host, this lady that called in, and he said, why didn't you report it to the police? And she said, I didn't want to get him in trouble. She was speaking about a, a black male. But I think the whole thing is black women are probably the least likely to report a rape. First of all, if it's a black male, we know the system doesn't care. They just don't care. And nine times out of ten, it may be somebody you know. So now you're in this whole thing 
of being, you know, feeling responsible because this man might go to jail, blah, 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 blah. And if he's a white man, you know the system's not going to believe you. They might believe you if you say it's a black guy, but they don't, they're not going to believe you if you say it's a white guy. So I suspect the number of white men raping black women in this country is probably a lot, lot higher than anybody would ever suspect. So I think for black women, being the most victimized women in this planet, but to also be the least believable victims and to be the women who no one seems to care about protecting anywhere, I think it's created a tremendous amount of damage to the black female psyche and a sense of powerlessness. Because I will tell you something, when you see people who are angry, what they're really saying is, I'm angry because I'm scared and I feel powerless to change my circumstances. That's what's really behind the anger. It's, it's a defense mechanism against fear. When you see people angry, you see women angry, they're really telling you, I don't know any other way to express it without being vulnerable. I don't know any other way to deal with it than to put on this big show of power. But in reality, I'm scared. So I just, uh, I just don't know. You know, I'm not surprised that they had an all-white jury um, in Oklahoma, of all places. But of course, they do it right here in Chicago, too. Many times they have all-white juries. But uh, I'm doubtful that an all-white jury is going to deliver any justice. I mean, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see. It'll probably take them two months to, trial, to, 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 to try the case and 20 minutes to come up with a conclusion. <laughs> I don't expect days of deliberation. But, you know, you never know. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we will be keeping folks abreast as the trial continues. Um, I had not planned to talk a whole lot today. I was just going to talk with my hands and just do transitions, play in audio clips, and uh, let Pam uh, give her thoughts on uh, different topics that we're going to be uh, presenting uh, today. So I will do that. Uh, just watch this transition from the Daniel Holtzclaw trial to Chicago. Now we can switch focus and uh, talk about specifically what's happening in Chicago, but uh, just I will hush and just watch the transition. This is from uh, Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Suns, astronomically constructive book. That is a Gus T. Renegade top 10. Uh, you will learn a lot about the system of white supremacy uh, and the black experience in the Northwest Hemisphere, United States, uh, during the 20th century, you will learn a lot reading that book. Isabel Wilkerson, she is an absolutely gorgeous uh, black female. She said she took 15 years to research and put that uh, book together. It shows in the book. Uh, she follows many different uh, black people throughout the book. Ida Mae Gladney is a black female. She's one of the main characters. Uh, she migrated from Mississippi to Chicago with uh, her black husband. And this clip that I'm about to play, uh, this is Ida Mae Gladney in Chicago. And she's talking about one of her experiences where she's just trying to work, trying to get a job, uh, not some freeloader, not on welfare, not on the dole, just trying to work, hold down a job so she can take care of herself and her family uh, as a resident of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, after that segment concludes, uh, you'll hear a snippet from Democracy Now! This was on uh, yesterday. Uh, and they were talking about the situation in Chicago with uh, 
Laquan McDonald. Uh, you'll hear uh, Barbara Ransby. She's a black female. She's at the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, where she's kind of talking about the Laquan, uh, Laquan McDonald situation and putting it in context. So it'll be a segment from the warmth of other sons first and then transitioning to Barbara Ransby on Democracy Now! yesterday. Context of white supremacy. Ida May's husband would not have stood for his wife to walk the streets for work. And in any case, Chicago had grown so segregated that the wealthy white neighborhoods were far from where they lived. But one day, Ida May got word of a job from someone she knew from back home in Mississippi, and that felt a little safer. A girl who was doing day's work for a well-to-do couple on the north side needed someone to fill in for her. It would be temporary, Ida May's friend told her, but would have to do for now. Miss Gladney will work in your place, Ida May's friend told the girl. The job was more than an hour away on the streetcar, farther north of the loop than she lived south, almost up near Evanston. The regular girl who mopped floors and folded laundry for the family would be away for a week. The job was paying something like four or five dollars a day. Ida May didn't hesitate. I was glad to take her place, she would say years later. She dressed for the job and took a change of clothes with her. It turned out to be a man and his wife living in a grand apartment above a shoe store the wife ran. Ida May took the elevator up and went into a glorious apartment where she found the husband alone in the couple's bedroom. He was still asleep, which seemed odd to Ida May, so she began looking for things to do. The husband roused himself and told Ida May what he expected of her. Get in the bed with me, he said. He told her the regular girl stayed in bed with him all day long. He reassured Ida May not to worry. He'd do the cleaning later. He figured that was a fair exchange and good deal for her, a cleaning girl not having to clean at all and still getting paid for it. Ida May was in her mid-twenties, a mother of three by then, married to a pious man who wouldn't stand for another man touching his wife. She knew white men in the South took whatever liberties they wanted with colored women, and there was nothing the women or their husbands could do about it. All her life in Mississippi, she had managed to avoid unwanted advances because she had rarely worked in white people's homes. Now here she was in Chicago, a white man expecting her to sleep with him as if that were what any colored woman would just naturally want to do. And no matter what happened... She would have no legal recourse. There would be no witnesses. It just would be a privileged man's word against hers. She was thinking fast. She was as mad at the girl who sent her without warning her of what the job really entailed as she was at the man expecting her to climb into bed with him with his wife just a floor below. She started to leave. But she'd come all this way, had spent the train fare, and she needed the money. Her body stiffened, and she backed away from the man. Just show me what you won't clean, Ida May said. Somehow, something in the way she stood or looked straight at him as she said it, let the man know she meant business. He didn't press the matter. He left her alone. He didn't say no more, because he seen I wasn't that type of person, Ida May said years later. And perhaps in that moment... Ida May discovered one difference between the North and South. 
she would not likely have gotten out of it in Mississippi. Her refusal would have been seen as impudence, all but assuring an assault. And there would have been nothing done about it. Here, the northern men seemed to view such a conquest as a hoped-for fringe benefit, rather than a right. That, along with Ida May's indignation over the whole thing, appeared to keep her safe. That day she cleaned the bathroom, the kitchen, the bedroom, and changed the linens as she had gone there to do. The man stayed in his room. She never went back. She missed out on the rest of the week's pay, which she desperately needed. Later she confronted the regular girl who worked for the couple. So you don't do nothing but stay in the bed all day, huh? Ida May said. Don't ask me to go back up there again. The girl paid Ida May out of the money she was making off the couple. The whole sordid affair stayed with Ida May for years. She couldn't see how the girl could live with herself. I just don't know, Ida May would say years later. Supposing the wife came back home. I just couldn't see how she did it. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. And, Professor, could you put this in context of the uh, of the ongoing and historical problems that uh, citizens of Chicago and the black community especially have uh, have encountered with the police? I mean, I think there was a report by Truthout earlier this year that the Chicago police were appeared to be uh, officially undercounting the number of 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 people killed by the police. Uh, But uh, talk about this historical problem in the city. Right. Well, there's the specific issue of uh, undercounting and making data available, which has been an ongoing uh, problem. But, of course, Chicago is the place where John Burge, uh, former police supervisor, uh, carried out systematic torture of young black men uh, in the police district, including, uh, you know, electroshocking genitals and putting plastic bags over the heads of uh, people that they were trying to coerce into confessions. Uh, All of this has now been documented. Uh, Many of his victims have been exonerated. But the fact that this could go on for over a decade in Chicago suggests some very, very deep-seated issues of racism and corruption uh, in the police department. And and that has to be taken very, very seriously. That is a part of the legacy uh, that we uh, are confronted with right now. Of course, even going back to the assassination of Fred Hampton, uh, the Black Panther Party leader and NAACP leader uh, in 1969, uh, where the Chicago Police Department was implicated in his, uh, in his murder. You know, there is a question of confidence, of accountability, of cover-up. Um, but unfortunately, it's not just Chicago. Um, African-American communities around the country have been um, at odds with police departments that have been Uh, insensitive to black communities that have engaged in racial profiling and that have been all too quick to use lethal force uh, against young black bodies, uh, black and Latino people uh, in general, but black people in particular. And I think that's why we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement uh, garner so much support. That's why we've seen young people in the Black Youth Project 100 uh, be so vigilant in exposing uh, the kind of uh, police abuse that we've seen here in Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, So it is uh, coming out of a historical context, but it's also uh, transcend Chicago. Before we get uh, Pam's comments, um, the segue in that, when you heard uh, Professor Ransby, uh, where she was talking about John Burge and all of the torture against 
uh, black people in Chicago uh, that included uh, attacking the genitals of black males that were in custody. Uh, Just going to go back to the interracial con game one more time and and read a quick segment. This is chapter 16, uh, the homosexual racist white male. Uh, and the subtitle, A Little Known Fact of Slavery, The Rape of the African and Black Males, where she writes, The raping, excuse me, raping the males of a conquered people is a European tradition that dates back to ancient Greek and Roman cultures where homosexuality was common. Tragically, raping black males is an American slave tradition that continues to this day. Coprez Kofi, unarmed black male, sodomized by officers with a screwdriver in an alley after being pulled over by Chicago police officers. Although the police denied his allegations, the jury was convinced by the evidence presented, including doctors' reports of tears to Kofi's rectum and a screwdriver found in the police car's glove compartment with fecal matter on it. This is a case from 2000. Seven, as I said, transitioning to Chicago. Any comments on uh, what you heard, Pam? Yeah, um, you know, unfortunately, that was common. Uh, the black women who went to work in white homes, they were often asked to bring their daughters along, you know, any young females along. So uh, this was really, really very common. And I suspect even today, when you look at the number of non-white immigrant women, that have essentially taken the place of black domestic, you know, black American domestic help, I'm positive they're going through the exact same thing. Uh, They have the same sense of powerlessness uh, that comes from being desperate. They don't want to be deported. A lot of them probably working illegally. I am positive. As a matter of fact, I I read something where a lot of times these women, and they're from the Caribbean uh, countries as well as non-white countries overseas, that a lot of times these white females are not even paying them, you know. So it's, it's a systematic thing that involves the white male and the white female. The white female just does not see the black female as a woman, as a human being. Uh, she has, you know, seldom during those times ever. Uh, she was, if anything, she resented the black female in these homes for the man paying any attention to her. Or maybe she welcomed the black female in the home because that got the sexual pressure off of her. I wouldn't be surprised if it was more common that she wanted his sexual attentions diverted elsewhere than being jealous. But in any case, yeah, I'm sure that that's going on to this day. Uh, People, jobs are very hard to come by. It doesn't take working in a kitchen to be in that situation. I'm sure that's happening in offices all across the country, uh, in workplaces all across the country, where women... Uh, particularly minority women, so-called minority women, particularly women of color, not white women and black women, are being coerced into sexual, uh, uh, giving sexual favors to keep a job, to get a job. Um, So, you know, it's it's just a a very... And then, uh, you know, men are also being sexually propositioned. There have been a lot of rapes of black men by police officers. There was a case in... In Brooklyn, I think it was, in New York, maybe about 10 years ago, I listed that in the book. And these uh, black, I think they were African males, they claimed that this police officer had taken them in the van and had raped them. I mean, it was over 12 of them that said that, and, they, of course, they weren't believed. So uh, I believe rape is a tool of the white supremacy system. 
it's a way of showing and dom it's a way of showing power of dominating the victims uh so it's it's really heartbreaking to even think back on what these poor black women who were just trying to bring food into the you know food and money into the home what they had to endure because for everyone that said no there was probably one that felt compelled to say you know you know that felt pressured to go along with it particularly in the south in the south you probably couldn't even refuse to do it so you know this is the legacy that we're dealing with and this legacy has tainted uh, our relationships with each other, the respect that black men have for black women, knowing that they couldn't protect them, the respect that black women have for black men, knowing that they couldn't protect them. So I think all of this kind of uh, legacy has really devastated the respect level between black men and black women. And that's why I wrote that book, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, to explain to the best of my ability why we're at each other's throats. And if we don't wise up, and get it through our big, thick heads that we are all we have. I don't care if you got an Asian woman in your bed tonight. I don't care if you got a Hispanic man sitting across the table from you. At the end of the day, when you have a community that you have to go to for support, when you have a community that you're going to need to go through, through this economic change that is occurring, you're not going to be going to the Hispanic community. You're not going to be going to the Asian community, and you're not going to be welcome in the white community. We got to get out of this psychological trap of fantasy world that we're in, where we watch all this television and we watch black people in positions of power, and we start to buy into this. We got a black president. We buy into this madness that somehow this country has changed, and we don't need each other. We need to wake up. And understand that nothing has changed like we think. And all we really have is each other. And we can watch all the Tommy Sotomayors we want, where we trash each other. But at the end of the day, these are the same people you're going to have to come back to for help. The same ones that you trashed and abandoned and rejected are going to be the only ones that you're going to be able to turn to for help. And we better get real about that. Um, before we get to... Uh some of the more details about the incident, like I said, Laquan McDonald and Rakia, uh, Rakia Boyd, some of the things that folks are talking about. Uh, the chief prosecutor in Chicago who will be handling the McDonald case, uh, Anita Alvarez, uh, there's a post, the horrifying behavior of Anita Alvarez, Chicago's head prosecutor. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just one little snippet uh, to get your thoughts uh, as we kind of transition with the broadcast but this is kind of linking both of the segments this subheading uh, Alvarez punishes woman for standing up to law enforcement here's another mind-blowing example of Alvarez's terrible use my word of discretion in 2010 Tijuana Moore filed a complaint with the Chicago Police Department claiming that she had been sexually harassed by law enforcement. She said that a Chicago police officer had come to her house because of a domestic complaint, asked to speak to her in the bedroom, and then touched and grabbed her breast. After she filed a complaint, she was threatened by two internal affairs investigators who tried to convince her not to pursue the issue. Sensing something shady was going on, 
Moore recorded her conversation with the investigators on her cell phone, but when she approached authorities with the recording, it wasn't the officer and investigators that were charged. Instead, Alvarez's office charged Moore with violating the state's now non-existent wiretapping law. The charge could have landed her in prison for up to 15 years. Luckily, in a great example of jury nullification, she wasn't convicted. Said one juror, everybody thought it was just a waste of time and that Moore never should have been charged. Uh, again, this is the same prosecutor uh, who is handling the Laquan McDonald shooting, first degree murder charges. Uh, any responses, Pam? Well, all I can say is she was lucky. Um, you know, it can say for everyone to, in, in, just my opinion, um, and I've heard this from rape, uh, you know, from, from um, organizations that counsel rape victims, is that for everyone that's reported, there's probably maybe 25 to 50 more that aren't. So uh, I commend her for having the courage. Because I think, personally, people can sell all the work tickets they want about, yeah, if they did that to me, blah, 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 and all that. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm, a, I'm scary. I'm a scary person. And to me, it takes a lot of courage to go up against a police department like Chicago. Not some small-town police force, which is just as dangerous, but to go up against, to live in Chicago and know what the police department is capable of, to go up against them and file charges and file complaints and record police officers, is an act of courage. Now, that's a counter-racist act, if you ask me. And that's an act to me that uh, this person took it upon themselves to be their own leader and to go forth and do and try to right an injustice. So that's, uh, I, I have great admiration for this, this woman, but I also feel like she was extremely lucky. Might not be, at least it's been my experience. Uh, enforcement officials, they tend to keep tabs on that sort of thing. Like, oh, you want to try and report one of us? We will keep, we got your information. We got your uh, driver's license and all that. Uh, we'll just hang out at your house. Uh, and I've seen lots of evidence uh, that they even do this for some white people. So you can imagine what they reserve for black people, uh, that they'll just hang out at your residence, hang out at your job, that sort of thing. And you'll just be harassed. Uh, as right. long as they feel like doing it, uh, since you, oh, you want to try and get one of us in trouble? No problem. We will fix you. And we got a whole team of armed race soldiers with badges to go out and coordinate our activity, our surveillance or whatever else we want to do to retaliate against you. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people say that that's a part of what keeps more people from trying. I think even some of the victims in uh, Oklahoma city were saying that, you know, they were afraid they didn't want to be harassed and that was what they expected would happen. Um, but I guess even before I proceed, have you seen the prosecutor, uh, Anita Alvarez? Have you seen her? Do you know what she looks like? You know, if I remember correctly, she's dark-haired, and uh, I mean, from her name, I would assume she's Hispanic, but I don't think she looks particularly, matter of fact, I look online, I don't think she looks particularly Hispanic, uh, but yeah, she's a Hispanic woman, uh, and I think I've seen her here and there, um, but you know, it, <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're in that system, then you're of that system, so... Uh, you know, uh, 
see Alvarez. I was going to ask if you if you thought she was uh, accepted as a white person. Do you think she's accepted as white, able to function as white? I think that given her position, she will probably have a better chance. But I think, like, uh, she looks Hispanic to me. So I suspect that she's probably, you know, one of the tokens that they sprinkle throughout uh, you know, one of the puppets that they sprinkle throughout. I mean, she's obviously under the, you know, she's obviously not operating on her own behalf. I mean, her power is limited. But, you know, they put these, you know, they sprinkle in these faces, these uh, Hispanic and black people. And, and I want people to ask, I want to ask people something, because I started to do a blog post about it. Check it out. Every single time some injustice is happening and they have a press conference, they always have the white person and black people standing right behind them in camera vision. I watched it at the press conference yesterday with Ron Emanuel and the police chief McCarthy talking about the young man that was killed 16 times, I mean, um, shot 16 times, and how the policeman was arrested. And every time I watched how the, the people came in behind them as they were standing at the podium, and they rearranged themselves so a black man was standing right behind Mayor Emanuel, and I watch that. They make sure that black people are always standing right behind them to the left or the right within camera range whenever they're talking about something that's happening, particularly to black people, or anything that makes the public mad or angry, whether it's about taxes, whether it's about corruption, whether it's about racism. They always make sure black people are in the camera view. And I just wonder if anybody else had noticed that. Because I saw it clearly yesterday, and I said, wow, you would think that the city administration is 90% black when you watch these uh, press conferences and news conferences. So it's a psychological trick of the eye to make sure that when they're mistreating black people, there's always black people's faces in that camera view. And make sure that we think they're part of the problem. Black people are part of the problem. I have seen that pattern uh, myself. Uh, I know uh, with Bill de Blasio uh, in New York, he's mayor uh, of New York, and that would be a cowbell. I just I don't have my screen up to do the cowbell, but that would be a cowbell. Uh, frequently, he will have his wife, uh, who is a black female. She will be present or their quote unquote biracial children uh, will be present. Uh, or other black people, uh, citizens of New York, who I guess are supporters of Mr. de Blasio or in his administration, they'll be hanging out. And especially if it's anything that seems like it's going to have a racial angle to it, like the situation in Chicago, where you got this white uh, race soldier who's shot this teenager, black teenager uh, shot him 16 times uh, or situations in New York when they were talking about Eric Garner and some of the other uh, cases that have played out over the past few years or so. Uh, they will get these non-white people. They'll get these black people up in the frame uh, so, of course, it's not racism. It's not white people mm -hmm. that are making this decision. Look at all those uh, black people uh, that are up there and what have you. What are you talking about, white supremacy? I saw tons of black people uh, up there when they made this announcement. They are very shrewd uh, with deliberately staging those sort of events. That It's almost like they, they got to count. Got to make sure. Wait a minute. We don't have enough. Nick. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, go grab, go grab a black person. Okay. Okay. Now we got to get and make sure you get them close to. Okay, great. Now start over and do it again. Like it's all coordinated, all meticulously uh, planned. Um, in that vein, I'm sorry. No, go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was going to even get the black cook from the lunchroom. Exactly. Just put them in a suit. Apron and give them a jacket. <laughs> exactly. 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 Just clean them up, put a suit and tie right. on them, and it'll be good to go. And then as soon as it, okay, nigga, get back in, you know, the kitchen or wherever. Get your mop back, get your broom back in. Right. We'll be good to go. Extremely skilled uh, at pulling off that sort of uh, visual deception. Um with the with the whole hubbub around uh, Laquan McDonald and uh, for folks, I guess, who are not informed, as you already stated, uh, this was a 17 year old uh, black teenager, black male. Uh, he was shot and killed by this white uh, enforcement officer, race soldier, uh, Jason Van Dyke. He was just charged uh, yesterday with first degree murder. Uh, this happened over a year ago. Uh, when he killed this young teenager in Chicago, they just uh, released the dash cam footage after uh, your mayor, Rahm Emanuel, uh, he and other whites, powerful whites uh, in Chicago fought uh, diligently for over a year to keep this uh, dash cam footage uh, from going public. Uh, and this uh, race soldier, Jason Van Dyke, he stayed on the payroll, uh, even though he was not uh, active duty. He was still uh, getting his money. Uh, you taxpayers in Chicago were funding him. Uh, so he could twiddle his thumbs or whatever else he was doing uh, for the past, uh, I think, 400 days or so. Uh, what are your thoughts of the case? What have you been seeing, hearing uh, in Chicago? Well, I, someone told me, and I'm not sure, so maybe I shouldn't even mention this. I heard he was like, in, in productive custody. Uh, I, I feel like this. He was doing his job, and they're going to take care of him. It doesn't matter if he's on paid leave. I mean, that's irritating when you hear they're on paid administrative leave, but it wouldn't make a difference. His family is going to get money from somebody. The union, from what I hear, the policeman's union, is probably taking care of his family, paying his, you know, paying whatever it is that they pay. And he's going to get money from other quote-unquote sources. I really believe what happens when these white policemen uh, are actually charged with harming or killing, murdering, a black person, that the system kicks into high gear and forces and resources come unseen to aid this person in their legal defense and to help their family and to make sure that if they spend any time in jail, when they come out, they're going to be taken care of. Because these are, like you said, race soldiers. They sometimes have to, you know, take one for the team. But that's all it is, is taking one for the team. Their team is going to take care of them. So I would caution black people, don't get happy about it. Don't get encouraged about it. This is just a smokescreen to make it appear when things got, I mean, it's kept it under their hats for a whole year. That should tell you right then and there that they're not to be trusted. But I think now they're moving against it because I don't think it's because they're afraid of black people rioting. Black people don't hardly ever riot. They're not worried about our violence. We're the most passive people on the planet. So it's not about keeping black folks from rioting. It's not about any fear of black folks getting mad. It's about keeping the level of deception at a level that is acceptable for them. You cannot show the victims everything and show them how bad things really are because the victims might actually start thinking and waking up. And that's the one thing that they do, and I've watched them do it when they had that, I forget what city that was, where they had that black female prosecutor, that real young one. Was that uh, Baltimore. Uh, Baltimore. Baltimore, right. This is what I saw. Now, I might not have the timeline right, but I think I might. When the Crips and the Bloods were out there and they said, 
they had a they had like they had said something. I guess it was captured on video or it was captured in the media or something. And they said, "Why are we fighting each other?" I said, "Uh oh, something's going to happen." Next thing you know, these policemen are charged. Whenever the victims show signs of stirring up or the victims show signs of waking up or anything is just too blatant, but they can't afford to ignore it, they put on a dog and pony show to make the victims think there is hope in the system. Keep hope alive. Go and vote. Celebrate Christmas and Thanksgiving. July 4th, good old America. So they do these, they throw the, little, they throw the victims little breadcrumbs to make them think the system might be slow. It might not be totally like you want it, but it does work. It just takes time, Negroes. It takes time. So keep your faith. So I think the one thing that they're doing is they have to keep the level of deception high. Keep the confusion high. Keep the denial high. Keep the illusion. And like uh, I think Paul Mooney calls it the delusion of inclusion or the illusion of inclusion. Keep that high. Make, them, make us think that the system might just work sometime because they can't afford to let us open our eyes and see. This ain't never going to work. Not as long as the system of white supremacy is this is not going to work. So what I might have to do is I might have to change what I do. Maybe I won't go out here this Christmas and spend money and make these white retailers rich at my expense. Maybe I won't celebrate Thanksgiving and pretend it's a day of celebration killing Native Americans. Maybe there's a whole lot of things. I might not even go to church this Sunday because guess what? My preacher and the mayor are good buddies. Maybe I won't even go out with that white man or white woman that asked me to go out. Maybe I won't drink any alcohol because that's how they got the Indians, the Native Americans. Maybe I'll start thinking. Maybe I won't even turn on Empire or Rosewood. Maybe I'll actually start stirring up from this deep sleep that I'm in, and I'll actually start doing some things to counter the system of white supremacy. That's how I saw the so-called uh, movement toward charging the police officer. That's how I saw it. But I know that this guy is going to be well taken care of. They come into his jail cell or his hospital room or wherever he is saying, don't worry about it, buddy. You know, we got you know, to run through this little thing, but you're going to be all right. When you get out, you're going to be taken care of if you ever go in. So I just see it as a huge deception. And I would caution people, please don't take any comfort in it, because the police are not only going to not stop, they're going to keep doing it, because now the police are mad. Now the police are mad. So you better really be vigilant now. You would think it would just be the opposite, that with this cop going up on charges, that the police would be like, oh, man, you maybe I better not shoot too many Negro, you know, I mean, shoot too many black people. I'm just using the word Negro because that's how they see us. No, I won't use the word nigger. Maybe I'll maybe be careful. Maybe I won't fill this one full of holes. Maybe I'll just arrest them like I'm supposed to. But I don't think that's going to be the result. I think it's going to be more violence. I don't think, um, I think actually all this televised violence against black people actually encourages violence because it kicks in something into that, psych, that sociopathic behavior mechanism of a racist. When they see violence against victims, I think it whets the, island, the, the appetite for more violence. So I would just say, please don't take any comfort in this. First of all, he hasn't gone to jail and he hasn't been convicted. So there's really nothing to celebrate. I know that was a mouthful, but, you know, that was, those were my thoughts when I was watching that press conference yesterday. Mm. Uh, I, 
number one, got to make sure I get this in. You are definitely not going to be uh, invited back on this here program coming here and telling people not to watch Empire. I mean, that is scandalous and blasphemy of the highest order to think that we are not going to tune in to our weekly installment of Empire. I mean, this Pam chick is, is talking crazy. Um, you were all right that she said that. <laughs> she was. She was. That is, that is total blasphemy right there. Um, the second thing, that I have already seen that kick in, and I mean, that's just pattern uh, with the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, Voltron, I, I've been saying that for years on the program, uh, white people, they are staunchly opposed to other white people at any time, ever, being disciplined uh, for allegedly practicing racism, mistreating a black person. That is just totally unacceptable uh, to whites. And you see that consistently, whether it's Darren Wilson, uh, even Daniel Holtzclaw. Uh, He had a GoFundMe site when he was arrested last uh, August 2014. He got almost $10,000 in a matter of days. Now, this is somebody like facing 36 counts of sexual terrorism against black females exclusively. And even then, White people's oh man, we gotta support this guy. What do you do? They if you if you look online, you'll see hashtags free the claw. Justice for Daniel Holt's claw. This is an outrage. This is a disgrace. We gotta get him out. Consistently, uh they do this sort of thing where they will look out and uh, I've already seen the reports where uh the Paternal Order of Police in Chicago, they're looking to get uh money uh together so that uh when Jason Van Dyke, if he can get uh, bail, uh, that they will have the money uh, right and ready so that he can can exit and not be behind bars. This is standard operating procedure uh, for white people. And we've even pointed out the double standard when it's been black officers in this position. They don't do the same thing. They don't make sure that black officers get that nice big check and that their family is taken care of and all that. They don't do that. They look out for other white people. And it seems to be regardless of what they are charged, accused of doing uh quick this is a a sound clip uh just to give a little bit more uh detail about jason van dyke and i really want to try to broaden this out because you we were talking about that before we went on air about not looking at this incident in isolation i think professor ransby she was making that point in the clip on democracy now going all the way back to uh the chicago police department and the role that they played uh, in the assassination of Fred Hampton uh, and Mark Clark, 1969, long history of white terrorism against black people in Chicago. Uh, but this is just uh, additional information about uh, race soldier Jason Van Dyke. Uh, and then we'll get Pam's comments context of white supremacy. The I-team tonight has been looking into the patrolman who is now charged with murder, Officer Jason Van Dyke. Tonight, the question is, who is Van Dyke and what is his work history? Eyewitness News investigative reporter Chuck Gowdy joining us with more on that. Chuck. Kathy, Jason Van Dyke has been on the job 14 years. He's 37 years old, currently being held without bond. Tonight, leaders of his union, the Fraternal Order of Police, have sent out an email to all current and retired FOP members asking them to contribute to a fundraising effort for bail money once bond is set. Mr. Van Dyke does have a history of citizen complaints, all of which ended up in no discipline. Tonight, though, he sits in jail charged with murder. When Van Dyke fired 16 shots into the Chicago teenager more than a year ago, it wasn't the first time that he ended up subject of an internal affairs case. 
17-year-old Laquan McDonald's death, now a murder, according to Cook County prosecutors who filed that charge today, was excessive force, they say, for a suspect with a knife. Despite the matter being juggled by police and politicians the past year, Van Dyke's attorney says the actual case will be decided on a different standard. Thankfully, politicians will not be deciding the fate of my client in this case. It will be uh, either a judge or a jury. Based on the video alone, it could be a tough case. A tough case for Officer Van Dyke to win, according to ABC7 legal analyst Gil Sofer, a former federal prosecutor. The video certainly makes it appear that the man uh, was fired upon when he was walking away. It doesn't show that he posed an immediate risk of harm to the officers. And the fact that, that what the officers were responding to was a burglary at a freight yard, not a kidnapping, not an attempted murder, not a very violent act. At least 18 citizen complaints have been filed against Van Dyke in his 14-year career, but he's never been disciplined, according to a University of Chicago database. Eight complaints alleged excessive force, two involving the use of a gun in addition to the McDonald's shooting. We don't have all of Van Dyke's complaints, but the complaints of the misconduct complaints from Van Dyke that we do have in our data tool show, by and large, excessive force and racial slurs. And he has largely operated with impunity and under a code of silence with the same huddle of officers again and again. The Cook County judge says he wants Van Dyke to come back to court on Monday. That's when bail will be reconsidered. He also, the judge, has asked prosecutors to bring along that dash cam video of the shooting ready to play in court on Monday, saying that it is pertinent to the matter of setting bail. So it will be played in public there. Context of white supremacy. Any thoughts, Pam? Well, you know, again, you know, I would caution people, you know, it's, it sounds like very even-handed reporting. Uh, it almost sounds like they're saying that, yeah, you know, this guy, you know, like they're giving information about his previous bad behavior, bad conduct, never uh, disciplined, uh, reprimanded, which means he's got probably, if 18 people reported him, he's probably got hundreds, uh, over 100 victims. And, uh, you know, I listened to the, the, you know, what you just played. And, again, I, I caution people, do not get pulled into it. Um, the system is designed to perpetuate itself. These kind of cases over and over again for no reason. They're not random. They're systematic. And the people that are playing the roles of making decisions are part of the system. So I would, again, you know, just say, you know, just, uh, I'm not even going to say hope for the best, because as far as I'm concerned, that's not the best. The whole system is a problem. And if this one cop goes to jail, that's not going to stop the other ones from doing what they're going to do. So uh, I just find it very problematic because this is nothing new. I don't care if Channel 2, CNN can do a special on it. It makes no difference. This is nothing new. And we really got to get out of denial about what we are dealing with and who we are dealing with and what we need to do to counter this system as individuals and collectively. Because I'm, my biggest fear is that collectively it's really getting tough to, to make that argument that we have a collective. So, the, uh, One of the things that's that, number one, that this, this record of complaints, uh, none of them substantiated no disciplinary action for, for any of these complaints. If you just uh, contrast that, uh, I would say any black person, whether you're listening live or to the archives, 
uh, you show up to work, you know, 30 seconds late. You show up to work and and forget to put a period on a sentence uh, or mess up an apostrophe in a report that you hand in and see if you don't get any sort of disciplinary action uh, or a writer. I mean, just imagine that if you could be a black person on any type of job, I don't care where you are, even if you were a football player, they they find football players. If you have a uniform uh, violation, if your socks are up too high, or you have the wrong type of socks on. You think you're going to get 18 violations and nothing, no slap on the wrist, no suspension, no write up, no verbal, nothing. That right there lets me know we authorize. This is what we expect you to do. Yes. Go out there and harass these niggas because they said racial uh, slurs that that was a part of it. And I'm a big fan of let's be truthful. We don't need to dilute it. That's what he was doing. I suspect going out and calling nigger, get on the car, put your hands behind your back spear chuck or whatever else he was doing that this is sanctioned this is expected if you're going to be a part of the chicago police department uh in terms of just not looking at this in isolation the other part when when they had their uh white legal expert uh come on and he he uh they released the video right people i think a lot of folks saw this so and he said uh i think it's it's going to be tough man i I think he's going to have a hard time uh, trying to win this case, uh, if it goes to court, I mean, it looks really bad. The guy, the uh, Mr. McDonald, he was backing away and he wasn't posing a lethal threat. It's not like we were talking about something that was, you know, a violent act or a violent crime uh, that was happening. And I said, that is that is total nonsense. White people get away with brutalizing black people all the time. When they have video, fingerprints, confession everything and it does not matter and i'm sure if he's a legal expert he knows this i'm just like what are you talking about that it's going to be difficult i I, if anything i would be stunned uh if this guy gets convicted it it would even be surprising if this even goes to trial given just what we've seen over the last year that's the type of thing that really uh irritates me as they say burns my grits when white people come out and they make bold-faced lies uh, like that, it, it it I think when we were talking uh, before we came on air, even uh, for Mayor Rahm Emanuel uh, to come out and other folks to put on this long song and dance pony show, as you say, well, we want to calm down. We we don't want this to get explosive. We don't want uh, people rioting and un- <laughs> as if any sort of action on the part of black people is going to really disturb them. This is Chicago. They spent all that time just this year alone talking about home and square. We got black bag sites. We could just snatch up black people anytime we want to. And you want your family won't even know where you are. That's what they were saying about home and square. The legacy of John Burge and what they were doing in Chicago, snatching people up, detain you. You haven't been charged. We can torture you uh, attacking your genitals putting bags over people's head. This is Chicago. Do you know how we get down here? What do you mean? We are frail. Oh my gosh. They might riot. They might march. Oh my God. This might get man. I, all I can say again, when white people come out and make those type of bold face lies, uh, you should be very concerned. Uh, I do not think at all. Anything is going to happen to, uh, I would be totally stunned if anything happens to him. Uh, and I think all of this uh, is just a grand 
racist production. I would encourage people to really look at pull back and look at this within the context of white supremacy. And if you want to be city specific with the city of Chicago, oh man, <laughs> they they have the science of terrorizing black people down on lock, updated daily. They know how to totally destroy and dominate black people in the Windy City. Uh, do you want to comment, Pam? Oh, I can't even add anything to it. It's uh, That's what I dislike is I'm listening to it. They're trying to sound all even-handed. But in reality, they act like this is something new, like this is something that isn't pre-scripted, that they don't know how the, what the outcome is going to be. And, again, it's designed to pull the victims in and make the victims think, wow, you know. Uh, you know, and, and this is something that I used to, used to fall into this hole, too, and that was now white people know we're not lying. <laughs> well, I don't say that anymore. But when I was younger, I used to think, well, you know, when they would expose some racist thing, I would say, hey, here's the evidence. Here's the video. You know, all the things we've been saying all this time are true. Now I know. They already know that they're true. And they don't have a problem with it. The problem is you figuring it out, that this is the way the system works. That's the real problem. The problem isn't black by dead bodies. The problem isn't renegade policemen. The problem, the real issue at hand is making sure you don't wake up, making sure you don't figure things out, because then I won't be able to get you in my bed. Then I won't be able to get you to cooperate. Then I won't be able to get you to buy into all the lies that I've told you. And you might just decide my best interests lie with my own people. Maybe I won't let them do a black brain drain on my community by letting them offer me scholarships to Harvard and Yale and all these elite schools where I'm going to be programmed against my own people and I'm going to be indoctrinated and brainwashed into taking my talents and education and using them to enrich white institutions. Maybe I'll decide I'm going to enrich my own people. Maybe I don't need Harvard. Maybe I'll start my own Harvard. Maybe we'll pool our resources and build schools, educational institutions, elementary schools. Maybe the slaves will wake up and say, you know what, we've been dealing with this mess for a very long time, and nothing fundamentally has changed. So maybe it's time for a new plan. That's what they want to avoid. That's why they put the empire on and the scandal and how to get away with murder and all this sort of nonsense of showing black people. And then they, now they're making the black women all lesbians. This is why they do that, because they don't want the black male and female to look at each other and see each other as allies. They don't want us together. They don't want us to like each other. And this is really, to me, the root core, the power. You want to look at the real power cell, the real thing that fuels white supremacy? It's not bullets. It's not guns. It's not money. It's not sophistication. It's non-white people having the wrong response to it. Non-white people still buying into it. Non-white people still looking for white validation. Non-white people not coming together. That's what fuels the system. And that's why they keep the deception going. That's why they pretend to give us justice once in a while, every blue moon, as though you can give out justice like a t with a teaspoon and call you having a justice system. I think the biggest fear is us waking up. And all these dog and pony shows are not about us not rioting, not about us getting mad. It's about us waking up. Context of white supremacy. Uh, nab some of the, the callers as well. I just... Uh, you have been uh, in the state of Illinois, Chicago area uh, for quite some time now. Um, 
with everything around Holman Square and John Burge, this uh, race soldier who was never prosecuted for any of his uh, terroristic and torture techniques against black Chicagoans. Uh, he was only prosecuted for lying uh, when he was on the stand, which is also very, which goes back to my point. This is not really incorrect behavior. That's what white people are saying. We have no problem. You want to castrate some niggers? No problem. Uh, you want to put electrodes on their testicles? No problem. Anything else you want to do? You want to put plastic bags over the head, kidnap them, store them away. Don't tell anybody. So their family and relatives, people that care about them, don't even know where they are, even if they're alive. No problem. That's what they're saying. That's that is the entirety of the Chicago Police Department, because this wasn't just one person. Uh, but did were people like the black people that you were around were people talking about this before all of this this came out and and they had this like in the newspaper where they're acknowledging it now they're giving reparations so they say uh to the victims uh of these torture and terroristic acts and they're supposed to uh put this in the school textbooks so children learn uh that this did in fact happen were people talking about black people were they talking about this were they hinting this and saying that this was going on to your knowledge before this blew up and became like big uh, a big news story I would have to say my experience has been probably not a lot. Here and there, I think a lot of times we numb ourselves to what's going on because it can be overwhelming. We also are very much caught up, as, as this whole society is structured, to be a, 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 just a series of distractions, making you hustle for money, worry about bills, worry about this, worry about that. Keep track of all these numbers that you have to have to, to function. So I think a lot of times all this stuff gets and entertainment. Entertainment is the is the panacea of the people. I mean, it is the real religion of people, not Christianity. White supremacy might be the real religion of white people, but entertainment is the real religion of black people, in my opinion. So they keep us distracted with a lot of stuff. I know people that can reel off sports scores going back ten years, but they can't tell you what happened yesterday in the news. They can't tell you. So I would have to say my experience has been not a whole lot of conversation. Uh, if it is, it's very superficial and very much easily glossed over because they don't really want to think about it, Gus. They don't really want to deal with it because we're looking for ways to avoid pain, not to uh, alleviate it. We want to avoid it. And they, there was this Jewish psychologist, I can't think of his name, but he said the beginning of mental illness is the avoid, avoidance of legitimate suffering. So as we drop deeper into denial, we're becoming more mentally ill and more detached from the reality of what is happening. So what you'll find is on these websites and blogs, people might talk about it, but you read the kind of comments, and it's not really any real understanding that this is not an incident here, an incident there. This is all connected. And like you said, I think it was a slap in the face and should have been a reality check, another one of one million and 10,000 reality checks, that John Burge, the torturer, the lawbreaker of, you know, breaking their own laws. That he really went to jail for lying to white people. He didn't go to jail for torture. And I think that was a huge slap. In the, and he was able to keep his pension. So he's out of jail now from what I understand. So the fact that he would torture people and not be charged with that but be charged with lying, that should have been like, wow, a huge slap in the face of saying that wasn't a problem for us that he tortured black men. That just wasn't a problem. He did what he was supposed to do. You know, the policemen serve as foot soldiers for the system. They are here not just to keep so-called law and order. They're here to mostly protect white property, white life, and to terrorize.
Oh. Are you still with us, Pam? Still with us? Not hearing you. Are you still with us, Pam? Oh. She got dropped. I will ring her bite back. Uh, the folks that uh, dialed in, I will go into the phone lines, uh, probably get in two more questions, and then I'll hit the phone line. I will ring Pam uh, right back. Uh, you have to forgive the uh, dial. Hello? Uh, lost you. We got you back, though. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what I was saying. I was just saying that... Uh, you had just... You just finished up the point, uh, John Birch, he's not in prison. Uh, these white pe- white uh, police officers, they're there to protect white property. Right, white property, white life. White life really isn't all that important, but, you know, you've got to have white people. They have a white supremacy system, so, you know, we've got to keep, you know, do something for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, maybe I just thought it was a slap in the face that this guy went to jail for, uh, for lying. <laughs> Not for torturing people, but for lying. But that, again, should have been another wake-up call that we're never going to be treated correctly in this system. Context of white supremacy. Uh, did you see the reports? Now, this came out uh, a few months back, so and I don't, I don't know if this was uh, big news in Chicago or you know elsewhere. I, I do remember that we were, uh, we played the report on the compensatory call-in. Uh, some time ago, uh, Lorenzo Davis, he's a black male. Uh, he's former uh, Chicago. Uh, he was a former member of the Chicago Independent Police Review Authority. And this body, these are the folks that are supposed to be reviewing uh, the Jason Van Dykes. So when a report comes in of misconduct uh, of a police officer uh, engaged in misconduct, these are the people that are supposed to review it and, you know, make some sort of recommendation about what should happen. And Mr. Davis, he's a black male. He said he was on this body and he would not go along. Uh, He would not help them in covering up uh, police misconduct when these reports were coming in or if they were reviewing a shooting and that sort of thing. And he was he was saying that they were covering up a lot of shootings and he got fired. Uh, And now uh, he has his case where he's, you know, trying to to say that they uh, were that his firing was unjust and a result of him doing the right thing, me not going along with these uh, police killings, police misconduct. Uh, did you see uh, the case of uh, Lorenzo Davis? I did hear about that, um, and I was really encouraged by the fact. I knew he was going to get punished, but I was encouraged. To me, that was an act of courage. Uh, that, to me, is a counter-racist act. I don't care if he never heard of Neely Fuller or whether he even heard of counter-racism. That's a counter-racist act when you refuse, to the best of your ability, to aid and abet the system of oppression. So, yeah, I did hear about it. And, I, you know, I, of course I know he's going you know, to get punished. I just hope that he is able to, co- to exist safely wherever he is and whatever he's doing. I just hope he can do it safely. Hang on. With uh, Rakia Boyd, the case uh, where this was a black female, she was shot and killed. This was 2012. Uh, she was shot and killed by an off-duty enforcement official, uh, Dante Servan, a uh, white male race soldier, uh, where he was not convicted. And I mean, that's a really trashy case when you look at uh, what happened in the courtroom when uh, when white people uh, just <laughs> the judge, uh, when they were saying basically that he acted recklessly uh, and that he committed an act of, of murder, basically, and killing Rakia Boyd. And they said, well, he should have been charged with uh, a stiffer penalty. Uh, and she threw out uh, the charges against Dante Servan. And I don't think 
uh, Dante Servant, unless I've been misinformed, he hasn't been fired either. Uh, I think the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department had just gave a recommendation that he be terminated. But that is not the same as going ahead and terminating somebody. Um, and that case has been linked to this one as well, where a lot I've heard a lot of black people in Chicago saying that uh, their organization around that case uh, helped them be in a better position to be active and protest and other things that they have coordinated uh, in connection to the Laquan McDonald uh, shooting death. Um, it just any thoughts on the the case of uh, Rakia Boyd, this young black female who was shot and killed just a few years ago? It's it, it's just uh, to me, it's more of the same. Um, I believe this is I believe a lot of the killing that's going on in Chicago, and I've said this for a couple of years, is by police. Uh, the gang members, gang people, make a very convenient cover for what is probably happening. And I believe that there's a lot black. We don't have a clue who's killing us. People are getting shot walking down the street. People are getting shot sitting on the porch in their houses. I don't believe all this is gang related. And if it is gang related, why aren't they kids and the gang members? You know, so they got cameras everywhere. You know, uh, gang members are notorious for ratting each other out, regardless of whether they're the mafia, the mob, Cosa Nostra, or, or, or black street gangs. You know, they're notorious for ratting each other out when they get in trouble. So why aren't more people coming. I, I just, I just think that uh, the police exist in our communities for the same reason they existed 50 years ago, and that is to terrorize. Uh, not to say that all policemen are terrorists, and I'm not saying that. I do believe that there are policemen on the force who are not terrorists. I don't believe every policeman on the force joined the force so he could kill black people, and I don't believe all the black policemen on the force are. Uh, you know, co-signing on this, uh, I do think there is some evidence, at least in my mind, that when a police officer does decide that he is going to do something, you know, speak out, he's going to get, you know, he winds up with a bullet in his head. So um, it, I just think that this is the function that, 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 like you said, they're race soldiers. They exist in our community primarily to protect white property interests and to terrorize the residents and at least make sure the residents don't take their criminality outside those communities. That's why there's so much crime in our community. It gets corralled inside our community and is allowed to run rampant as long as it doesn't come outside the community. So if you took a white area and the people inside that area could commit crimes without any real interference, guess what those white areas would look like? And this is the thing that kills me about this country is all this pretense of understanding what causes violence or how violent some group is versus another or, you know, like white people have come on television after some horrendous crime has happened within their community. That kind of thing doesn't happen here. And I'm thinking, like, when was it in your history that you didn't kill each other? What are you talking about? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's insanity to me for white people to pretend that black people are so violent. When all they got to do is look at their own communities. Look at the intra-violence within their families. Look at the mass violence, the mass killers, the serial killers, the violence everywhere. So that's probably, you know, why increasingly it's getting harder and harder for me to enjoy quote-unquote entertainment because, you know, it's, it's like you've been just sucked into this delusional world of what white life is really like. 
You know, we just don't understand why people have gangs. We don't understand how people kill each other. We don't understand what drive-bys. You created the drive-by for Christ's sake. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, uh, no apologies needed. Uh, the violence is all over TV. That seems to be one of their biggest uh, draws for entertainment is violence, and especially violence against black people. We just talked about that with Walking Dead uh, this week. Um, to exactly to the point, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a, a, a extremely uh, critical uh, theory that you have presented before on the program that all of this talk about gang violence in Chicago and, oh, my gosh, the Negroes are running amok and, you know, the drug wars and, and the South Side. And, oh, my God, that's uh, Spike Lee's uh, documentary is coming out next week. That was in the intro. Uh, Chirac uh, is talking about that exactly. And then the uh, homicide rates. Uh, amongst black people in Chicago. And I think even Thomas in New York, he mentioned this uh, before as well, that Chicago, the homicide rate in Chicago used to be way higher than what it is now. Uh, like in the nineties, roughly about 20 years ago, it used to be way higher and you didn't have the same type of, of focus. So I can't even say that really <laughs> one of the most important points I would hope people take away uh, from all of this is everything that you're seeing with Laquan McDonald, Rakia Boyd, uh, in the city of Chicago, the Holman Square, that was earlier this year, the teacher strike uh, where they were protesting incorrect treatment. That was largely black females, I think, back in 2012, if folks remember, because that was going right into the uh, presidential election at the end of that year. All of this is meticulously engineered by white people. The way that black Chicago looks, the suffering in black Chicago, this is nothing new. This is exactly what white people want. Mr. Full, I think that's one of the most important points where he says when he realized that white people like it this way, they enjoy it. That's what you should think about Chicago. Black Chicago is notorious for black suffering. That was the whole reason why those audio clips at the beginning uh, cut from all those different areas. Chicago, 1960, Chicago, 1950. I could I should have. I had it on my list to go all the way back. Uh, Red Summer, Cameron McWhorter, Chicago, 1919. White people killing black people starts off because they have uh, the swimming area in Chicago. They wouldn't allow black people to swim there. And white people were throwing rocks at a black child and drowned him. Chicago, 1990. They enjoy black suffering. And all of this nonsense, uh, Rahm Emanuel coming out. And even I think this is another important point Pam always makes about how you have uh, white saviors. It was a white man who made the Freedom of Information request to get the video footage and all of that that, you know, they're saying that led to uh, this race soldier being arrested. Uh, it was a white woman. They got the information about the uh, racial slurs and his record and all of that. So you say, oh, see, they're good white people. There were, other, and I mean, at every time period, if you look back, there were white people saying, oh, man, we need to let some of these black people, these niggas move into the area. You know, they're being mistreated. This is terrible. Every era, there will be a good white person so that it confuses our understanding of what it means to be white their dedication, their enjoyment. I cannot emphasize that word enough. Their enjoyment of Chicago looking exactly as it does. And this is not a 
this is not an indictment of Spike Lee's film Chirac because I haven't seen it and I'm a huge Spike Lee fan particularly his documentaries I mean from Malcolm X we can just stop right there just from that would be enough in my opinion but his documentaries are outstanding and they all deal with racism his uh, documentary on four little girls is amazing Uh, his documentaries on Katrina I've cited them all the time they are amazing uh, his documentary on uh, Jim Brown football, um, and racism, white supremacy as the, at the core. They are hugely constructive. But just when I saw he was doing a documentary on Chicago and the murder rates and, and black death, I've talked about this. This, in my view, white people love this. They, in, when they, and I think people have been making that point when they listen to the program. They get the civic. The documentary just came out this week, Jordan Davis. They're even using the same terms. Uh, democracy now they had for this week laquan mcdonald it was uh i think 30 seconds 16 bullets that was the way they were describing it the name of the documentary for the jordan davis film is three and a half minutes 10 bullets that's what i mean about this is just cliche this is just routine black death oh this is great this will become this is our popcorn movie for the weekend fruitvale station i wrote about it earlier this year this is enjoyment. So I just I wanted to ask all of that to say uh, with the documentary on Chicago coming out next week. What do you think? Because it, it just to me, it seems like there's been a lot of focus on Chicago and the death rate. And what are we going to do? Why do you think white people are so focused on it? And you keep getting all these documentary films and what have you. You know, it's a good question. And, and sometimes I, I wonder, is Chicago being targeted for something in particular? Because I didn't realize until recently uh, that. Chicago has such a huge black population. I mean, I knew there were a lot of black people here, but uh, I think it ranks among the top cities in terms of black population, even though a lot of black people are leaving. I heard, I think as someone told me, it's about 200,000 black people left Chicago in the last several years. But uh, and at first I thought, well, maybe it's the real estate thing, you know, uh, pushing us out the city. But I don't think it's that completely. I think it's, it's something else that Chicago is being groomed for. And I do believe it's more of a, it, it, it's on a much larger scale than just black people. Um, I think, um, without saying the wrong thing, and what I mean by wrong thing is something I can't substantiate, and that is um, I think Chicago is in the, in the target sites for something in particular, something on a much bigger scale. I think uh, there's something about Chicago. I don't know. So I've been here, you know, I've been in the Chicago area all my life, and uh, I know the racism here, racism here is particularly, it's just got a particular sour taste to it. And um, I just think that it's, 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 I'm not really sure exactly why Chicago has the history that it has, but I do know that a lot of, it has a big black population. It has a somewhat, you know, a lot of diverse population. It's not like Oklahoma City. Oklahoma, for example, where the black people are very repressed and very submissive to white supremacy. No fault of theirs, but they are, in my opinion. Um, I really can't say why Chicago is the way that it is, but I know that it has always had a terrible history in terms of, I mean, I've just seen so many things. I mean, I just, I mean, I'm sure no different than anyone else, but I've just seen a lot of stuff here that uh, I think in part certainly shaped me, you know, as a person. Uh, So I'm not really sure how to answer that, Gus. 
I'm, uh, <laughs> I'll give my, my theory on Chicago's taste. Uh, I'll give my theory by reading um, book we need to have on the book club. Man, uh, this is, uh, I know Pam knows this, A Foot in Each World. Essays and articles by Leonita McLean. Uh, this is uh, extremely constructive uh, counter-racist effort, in my opinion. I would definitely encourage folks to uh, buy a kind of black journalists. We just did the program this week. Black journalists, the important, the astronomical importance of black journalists. Uh, I cannot stress that enough, uh, particularly black journalists who are able to speak uh, truthfully about racism, and white supremacy, but she uh, lived in Chicago. She wrote about racism uh, in the city of Chicago. Uh, she wrote some just incredible pieces and she wrote a piece specifically. This is uh, whoa, from the Washington Post, July 24th, 1983, how Chicago taught me to hate whites. It is an incredible article. Uh, I've read portions of it on the program before because we've done a lot of work on the cows on Chicago. But uh, she writes, Chicago, I'd be a liar if I did not admit to my own hellish confusion. How has a purebred moderate like me, the first black editorial writer for the Chicago Tribune, turned into a hate spewer of invective in such little time. Even today, the vicious psychotic events leading up to and following Harold Washington's election as the first black mayor of Chicago leave me torn as never before. I've become a two-headed, two-hearted creature. The sides are in continual conflict by turns pitying, then vilifying the others, sometime with little reason, never with tranquility. In one day, my mind has sped from the naive thought that everything would be all right in the world if people would just intermarry to the naive thought that we should establish a black homeland where we would never have to see a white face again. The campaign was a race war. So is the continuing feud between Harold Washington and the white alderman usurping his authority. Even black and white secretaries in City Hall are not speaking to each other. But why am I so readily doubting and shutting out whites I thought of as friends? I am not one of those despise, a, excuse me, I am not one of those, despite a comfortable life, who have forgotten my origins. It is just that I have not been so rudely reminded of them in so long. Through 10 years working my way to my present position at the Tribune, I have resided in a gentrified, predominantly white, north side, lakefront, liberal neighborhood where high rents are the chief social measure. In neither place have I forgotten the understood but unspoken fact of my difference, my blackness. Yet I have been unprepared for the silence with which my white colleagues 
greeted Washington's nomination. I've been crushed by their inability to share the excitement of one of us making it into power. I've built walls against whites who I once thought of as my lunch and vacation friends. And I've wrapped myself in rage as sick, twisted city besieged the newspaper with letters wishing acts of filth by black baboons on the daughters of its employees. Just because it endorsed this black man. An evilness still possesses this town and it continues to weigh down my heart. During my morning ritual in the bathroom mirror, my radio tuned to the news talk station that is as much a part of my routine as shaping my eyebrows, I've heard the voice of this evil. In what would become a standard bigot on the street interview, the voice was going on about the blacks. The blacks this, the blacks that, the blacks, the blacks, the blacks. My eyes fogged, but not from the bathroom steam. The blacks. It is the article that offends. The words are held out like a foul-smelling sock transported two-fingered at the end of an outstretched arm to the hamper while the nose is pinched shut. The blacks. It would make me feel like machine gunning every white face on the bus. Why couldn't these people just say blacks? Letting it roll from the tongue. The blacks. These people were talking about me as I understood in my bathroom mirror neatly outlining my lips about to put on a dress or success suit and silk blouse. These were the people who dislike welfare recipients for fitting their stereotypes and who despise me because I do not. The users of the blacks make no distinction unlike the liberals who in their weaker moments will say, well, I wouldn't mind having you next door. You're different, you know. Leonida McLean, the black, just another nigger. The tears returned when Jane Byrne, suddenly defeated in the primary, announced a write-in campaign to save the city from the brash black man and his opponent, the avuncular Jew. My editor-writer colleagues were probably left in as much disbelief by the obscenity I spat at the television as by anything that little Snow Queen had just said. With my back to the closed door of my office, seemingly focused on my word processor, I cried in anger. My God, I implored, what do these white people want of us? I think I'm going to stop right there because uh, the article does go on 
uh, for a couple more pages, and it's all pretty much as powerful as what, I, in my opinion, that is. Uh, when I say powerful, it doesn't necessarily mean that I think you know I agree with everything that's being said. It's just it reveals a lot about the system of racism, white supremacy. I was going to just read that and go to the phone, but I feel it would be incorrect without giving Pam an opportunity. If it's anything you would like to share about uh, what I just read, if you could tolerate my narration. Oh, you know what? That was, that was powerful. And I remember when I read it and I remember being moved enough to, to, uh, after, and I, uh, it was so hurtful when she committed suicide and I bought the book and the book came out after she, uh, after she was gone, it was put out by Clarence Page, I believe, or whatever it was. I think the guy that she was either engaged to or married. I don't think they were married. And, no, that was powerful because she was right there in the midst of it. And anybody who's never been in a situation where they've been in a workplace where there you know, not that many black people where it's a, a corporate white workplace and where there's a lot of confusion because some people – you, you know, you're, you're friendly with and some, you know, seem to be genuine and blah, blah, blah. And the confusion when you realize that uh, they do or say something racist and then that whole house of cards comes down. And she mentioned something, I don't know if it was in that article or not, about how she didn't, A Foot in Both Worlds was the name of the book. I would highly recommend people read uh, the book. It's called A Foot in Both Worlds. And she talked about not really being black enough you know, because of education and, and her, you know, level of, you know, she has achieved some success and not being white. And I think a lot of black people today can relate to that, where, you know, they kind of have a foot in both worlds. But, no, I, I, I think that was an excellent thing to, to share. Context of white supremacy, the importance of black journalists, long, important legacy of black journalists. Uh, I'll give you one more paragraph, one more paragraph uh, for folks. And you should read, you should get the book a foot in each world. You should get the book uh, that we have a black girl <laughs> who uh, is going to narrate and read this for us. Um, she narrated uh, Asada when we, uh, we read that, but she, I think is a Chicago native uh, looking, uh, looking forward to uh, getting that done. That was one of the books that I, I wanted to do pronto. It's amazing, but the paragraph, and then we'll hit the callers. Uh, the Chicago Tribune endorsed Harold Washington in a long and eloquent Sunday editorial. It was intended to persuade the bigots. It would have caused any sensible person at least to think. It failed. The mail and calls besieged the staff. The middle range of letters had the words lies and nigger lovers scratched across the editorial <laughs> i'm gonna i'm going to uh whoa oh wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute <laughs> wait, just for the I, st- I mean wow the whole thing is it is extremely powerful the last paragraph she says and it's right after nigger lovers hoping to shame these people make them look at themselves the newspaper printed a full page of these rantings But when the mirror was presented to them, the bigots reveled before it. The page only gave them aid and comfort in knowing their numbers. That is what is wrong with this town. B. 
being a racist is as respectable and expected as going to church. Hmm. Leonita McLean. And the title of the article, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. We will hit the phone lines. Uh, you have to be uh, you have to be to the point, efficient today, because uh, a lot of yeah, you have to be efficient. So we don't have time for speechifying and you know all that. Just be efficient with your question. Uh, we don't have time for you to give a lot of commentary because I want to try to make sure we get everybody in with a question. A uh, person that dialed in from a block number. Did you have a question for Pam? Um, yes, can, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, um, yeah, hi to everyone and the guests. And Pam, I really enjoy it when you come on the show. Pam, I wanted hi. to ask you a question. Since there uh, is supposed to be, uh, I mean, there's supposed to be a really big shortage of black males now, uh, a lot of them disappeared in prison, a lot of them are gay, or a lot of them just don't have anything to do with black females anymore, uh, a lot of black people have been talking about polygamy what do you think about that? Do you think that, I mean, you know, considering how black women a lot of times they don't get along because of our history, you know, because, you know, because of white supremacy, how do, do you feel about that? Do you think that would be an answer, you know, to, you know, to keep the population of our, of, of our race going? Uh, you know, I've heard, actually, someone had said something recently about that. And I think polygamy can work within a culture when people are groomed within that culture to understand what it is and to see that it's not about sex. It actually involves more responsibility. And I think uh, given that we've conformed to Western standards within a system of white supremacy along with all our dysfunction between black male and female, I don't see how, I, I personally don't think it's a, a feasible solution at this current time because I don't think there's any real serious attempt to understand what polygamy is. And uh, I don't personally, uh, given the nature of relationships between black women, you know, uh, you know, this competitiveness and this hostility, I think it would be rare to find a situation where it actually works. I'm not saying it couldn't work. But I don't think, I think the men would see polygamy as a chance just to have more sex with more different women. And the women would see it perhaps as a competition between who's going to be the top dog in the house or the top dog yet or the top female in the house. So uh, I I do have the utmost concern about the shortage of available men for the black female population. I do think it's a real... uh, it's a real serious issue, and I think it causes a lot of conflict. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to get your idea about that. Okay. 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 Okay, thank you very much. For sure. Uh, Carl, retired firefighter in Florida, did you have a question? It's echoing. it's echoing a little bit, echoing a little bit. She's got speakerphone, or you're listening to the program. We'll try again. Uh, Firefighter, are you with us? 
Can it be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, I, I kind of like didn't have my uh, my uh, things ready when you uh, called. Uh, basically, what I have is uh, sort of like a uh, observation that that I that I had of the uh, of the incident that recently took place in Chicago, and just wanted to Miss Pam to uh, comment on it. Uh, I'll start off by saying, first and foremost, I, I, I agree with her, with her uh, statement to black people and saying uh, that uh, they should be very cautious on on uh, their uh, expectations of the uh, the uh, 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 situation with the uh, white enforcement of, uh, official uh, uh, because. And I agree because also I, I saw on a uh, television program, uh, they have so many of them now, different uh, channels. Uh, there's one channel where they actually uh, 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 basically show you how police officers are trained and they, they uh, incorporate if, uh, uh, training from other states, other towns, other cities. And in this one particular city, they, they train their officers to use deadly force with a person with a knife at a certain distance. Now, this distance that that non-white black male was from the officer, I'm pretty sure he was, he was within that range that uh, was equivalent to the program that I saw how he trained police officers. So all of these things haven't came out, you know, that they're, they're saying some things kind of like, you know, with a lot of non-white people especially, uh, let our guards down and thinking there's going to be some sort of uh, restitute and death of this uh, young black male. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't think so. I, I think uh, uh, because they have the power to do so and there won't be no pushback on it, uh, none of that really would affect them anyway. Uh, that uh, that that this guy is going to uh, get off and continue on to what he had been doing in the past. I believe he had gotten uh, what right uh, complaints, but how many uh, of them stuck? None of them stuck. Something like that. And uh, just uh, have her to comment on that. Um, I, I'm not sure what what your question was. Uh, oh, just a comment on. I'm sorry. Could you just restate your question real quick? That's kind basically, of, uh, basically what, <laughs> if you can boil it down. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I should have done a bit better job of it, but uh, uh, basically, basically, what I was doing. I'll just take it back on what she was saying. Uh, something I noticed about it was mentioned about the distance of the uh, everybody. Well, every every report was saying about how how he was moving away from the officer, but mm-hmm. on another program, a training program, how they train police officers. I saw whereas uh, they gave a certain distance, and I'm pretty sure that distance was a that he was was from the officer. It was it was in the in the realm that uh, their training tells them that that they can apply deadly force. Okay. Oh, what what is my comment on that? Well, you know, there's one thing. That's the thing that kills me is these guys are supposed to be trained. Now, how is it that you need to shoot somebody seven, 16 times to disarm them? That's a pretty uh, lousy police, office, police work, if you ask me. Secondly, if the person's moving away from you, 
I mean, there's no justification for shooting anyone 16 times unless they're coming at you with an Uzi, okay? And I find it ironic that if they shot a dog six times, the white people would be coming out in protest, mass protest. Why did you have to shoot that dog six times? Um, and I find it ironic that, you know, just recently, in the last two weeks, two separate different white females used vehicles as a weapon. One white female, I don't know if you guys saw this video, she drove her vehicle SUV yes. at a white police yes. officer. She didn't get shot. Now, I think he did shoot, but she didn't get shot one time. When she got out that vehicle, however they stopped her, she didn't get shot. She didn't get beat. Then there was a separate case of a white female who was high on something. I don't know what it was. She, they were, I guess they were pursuing her. She jumps out the car, jumps into a police car, takes the police car and rams it into the vehicle that she got out of where her grandfather was in the vehicle. And she didn't get shot one time. The thing is, and then I heard, I think it's the lady, the first lady, she might, they say she might get about one and a half years in jail. Now, she actually drove her SUV at this officer. Now, to me, if he had shot her 16 times, I would have said that was justified because she was driving a vehicle right at him. So I find it ironic that white people can commit all kinds of crimes, but they're never shot 16 times. I even posed this question one time on YouTube just out of curiosity. Because this was back maybe about a year ago, white people were ranting and raving about some kind of something about Black Lives Matter or something they were ranting about. And so I just asked the question. I said, well, what would white people, what would you think as white people if unarmed white men, women, and children were being shot by black police officers? I tell you, I, I asked the question three, four different places. Never got one answer. Not one. I'm not exaggerating. They would talk about everything, but nobody would answer the question. So I asked it again. I was just curious, doing a little experiment. Not one white person would answer that question. That in and of itself is all the answer I needed. They would not tolerate nor think it was acceptable for unarmed white people to be shot and killed by black policemen or policemen of any kind. So this is the deliberate. This is not about the training. There's no reason them shooting unarmed people multiple times. You're supposed to be a trained officer. You're supposed to know how to use a weapon. You're supposed to be trained to disarm people. How come they can disarm white people but they can't disarm us? Uh, right on. Caller in Florida. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Pam? Yes, I do. Good evening, Josh. Good evening, Pam. Good evening, happy um thanks to White People Day. Um, I have a few questions. Um first I wanna say I read your piece about commercials, um, on your webpage. And okay. um I tried to comment but it, it, it somehow it wouldn't take. Um, but I just wanted to know how you felt about it. I, I was gonna say, um, I've been noticing in a lot of commercials when they do have a black couple, it seems to be a total role reversal. It mm -hmm. seems like the female is in the more dominant role and the male is more of the the guy who the female is taking care of or, you know, like her sidekick. Have you noticed that as well? Yes. As a matter of fact, I was going to do a blog on that because they, they make the black female the, the, the punishing mommy and they make the black male the fool. Have you seen a commercial, uh, some commercial about some kind of bed commercial? Uh, it's a furniture commercial or something. And he says, one side for pleasure, the other side for, for something. One, he rolls back and forth across the mattress. 
and they have the black woman sitting there with a, with a scarf pad around her head, wearing these granny glasses, reading something, because she's studying. I mean, he's just a clown rolling around the bed. And she's looking and viewing and studying something. And she looks at him, and she gives him some sharp retort, like, behave yourself. I mean, she doesn't say those words. But so to speak, like, she's no nonsense. She's serious. She's mean. She's mean mommy. And I watch these images of black women being mean and being in positions of dominance of black men. This is all programming. This is all about creating dissension between black men and women. And almost everything you see on television today, be it Empire, I mean, look at Empire. You got two, ex, two black folks that's convicts, been to jail. Gonna, this is how the Empire is built around what? Music? Built around what? Drugs? I don't even know what it's built around because I don't watch it. But you got this show where these people are constantly disrespecting each other, being nasty to each other, the son disrespecting the mother. Uh, the only married person on the show is a white, black male married to a white female. You got a black male in a homosexual relationship. So everybody's in a relationship with anybody but with a black woman and a black man, having a, a so-called positive relationship. So now everything, I think black people need to be aware, everything you see on TV today, be it a commercial, be a TV show, be a movie, I don't care what it looks like on the surface, it's all white supremacy propaganda, every single bit, whether it's a black male rescuing white humanity, whether it's a black man being accused of mistreating a black woman, like a lot of movies coming out now show black man is the enemy of the black woman, of costing her and stalking her and trying to kill her. There's a lot of movies like that now, where the black man is the enemy, you know, or the black woman is running around having sex with white men. Everything you see, people, especially on Fox News, Fox TV, it's propaganda. It's all designed to corrupt your thinking. And if it's not about some serious crazy stuff, it's about being clowns and buffoons. Clowning night and day, TV show, court TV, makes no difference. Reality show, black folks are either clowning or hurting each other. It's either one or the other. It's all white supremacy programming. Everything on the tube is white supremacy programming. It's no way. I can't. If somebody can give me one exception, please. I've had uh, just about enough of your uh, empire bashing. Uh, <laughs> caller at 9769-9769. Did you have a question for Pam? Oh, oh. Yes, um, greeting. Um, can I be heard? Yes, Hi. sir. Hi, um, Pam, what are your thoughts on black women holding sex strikes? to curb violence. Um, I understand that's the premise of Spike Lee's Chirac movie, and I think a woman, a black woman in Chicago is also trying to get that going as well. You said sex strikes? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's, that's no, you know, I, I guess I'm out of the loop. I didn't hear about sex strikes. What oh. are they saying? Do you know what they're saying they're striking for? Um, so, uh, I guess black women, they're withholding sex from black men so that these black men don't commit violence. And I guess the best explanation that I could give. Oh, you know what? Now that I think about it, I think I did hear something about... Was it Spike Lee that said, or someone said, that black women use the power uh, to stop black men from committing violence? Right, yeah. Oh, my gosh. But see, once again... 
the victims are being put in making being responsible for other victims. Now, how is that going to work? Uh, well, how about this? I'll tell you what. If white women go on sexual strike to stop white men from killing us and to stop them from killing people overseas, then, you know, I can see if it works. Because I think they got a much bigger problem with violence than we do. So why don't the white woman get the ball started? But no, I think it's I think it's an asinine idea to put that on black women to begin with. It's it's such a ridiculous idea. And secondly, uh, you know, what's that going to what 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 dynamic is that going to create between black men and women? Well, you know, John, I'm not going to have sex with you, but I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, I don't care. You know, I'm just not going to have sex with you. You know, so I mean, I don't understand. You know, what is that supposed to do? Hmm. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to make sure I get everybody uh, in. Let's see. The person from a block number. Did you have a different person from a block number? Did you have a question for Pam? Well, a question and an observation. Um, thank you, you for minimize the there. observations. Just trying to get it to everyone we can. If you can, you know, just make it quick. Observation was really important. Mm-hmm. But okay. All right. Um, I think when I saw all of the 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 black men with the white women and the black women with the white men. I'm I'm correct in saying all of that started after President Obama became president, right? I mean that really was when it when it just started being on T V, on every commercial, on every show. Just I mean, Melissa Harris Perry when all of these, you know, quote unquote biracial people showed up was after President Obama became president. And do you think that that is a different message, a different message than than we are okay with black people. I think that's a completely different message. We want biracial people is not the same thing as we're okay with black people. I mean, does that make sense? That those messages are completely different, but I don't see anybody pointing out that those are two completely different messages. So anyway, I was just wondering what you thought about that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first thing you said. I, I do think that after, I think Obama being a, a biracial, quote-unquote biracial male, was all part of the strategy of him being the, the quote-unquote first black president. I think the biracial part was something that was by design. I've got a whole theory about that. And I do think it encouraged the creation of more bi- so-called biracial images. I saw them before he got in, but I think they really have ramped up in the last, you know, eight to ten years. So um, I think the message that they're giving that I get from all of this biracial imagery is it's an anti-black message because it's basically saying that the biracials are new and better and improved and more acceptable black. When in reality, they're victims of white supremacy and we've seen through countless societies where so-called biracial people existed that they weren't treated very well either. And they were generally used against the black, their, their darker uh, brothers and sisters. So it's just a strategy to me of divide and conquer, more confusion, more conflicted people, because a person that has a black and a white parent is automatically put in a trick bag. I don't care what they say. 
you are put in a trick bag in a white supremacy system. And I have never, ever seen a person successfully navigate sitting on a fence. I have never seen a person able to navigate a society by walking a fence. You're going to either fall off on one side or the other. Both sides can be painful. One side you're never going to be accepted in, and I don't care what you say or do. So I think it's all about the imagery of encouraging black people to breed ourselves out of existence, which is not going to happen, but also to create this, reinforce this inferiority complex that we have, that the whiter we are, the better we are. The whiter we are, the more successful we will be. The whiter we are, the more, the more accepted we are. The whiter our children are, the, 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 so it's just a whole dynamic of actually attacking black unity. It's a method of attacking black sanity. And it encourages a lot of madness in terms of our sexual and social choices. It's so bad now that black people are actually, especially the younger group, they're actually walking around saying they don't want to date other black people. I think I listened to Dr. Welsing, one of your, uh, I don't know how old this show was with Dr. Welsing. I listened to one last night. And Dr. Welsing was talking about a client of hers, I believe, who had a daughter who said that a black male told her that she might want to consider dating white men because she was too dark for them to date. So this is a kind of madness, this promotion of biracial people, through no fault of their own, of course, is really about white supremacy. It's really about anti-blackness and white supremacy. And unfortunately, a lot of our people were walking around saying, I want an Obama baby. Well, you don't have a baby with a white person because Obama is president. But that just shows you the level of insanity and confusion that goes into black and white people having sex to begin with. And that's really something that we should really cease and desist. And I know that, you know, when you're in an environment and you're around people, and you can be attracted to other people. I mean, I'm not saying you can't be attracted to someone. But when you're in a war, if you are lining yourself and sleeping in the bed with someone who is benefiting from your devastation, then you are basically saying that you want to continue this devastation as far as I'm concerned. You cannot say you're going to fight a war and acknowledge you at a war and then turn around and lay in the bed with the person who represents the people warring against you. I mean, you have to, at some point, you've got to make up your mind. Either you want to win the war or you just want to get some. So I don't know which one it is. I'm not sure which one is the most important to us. So I guess time will tell. Right on. Uh, person at 1078. 1078, did you have a question for Pam? Last four digits, one zero. Hey, how you doing? Hey, good evening. Uh, this is uh, Death and I was calling out of Miami. Oh, greetings. Now, uh, good evening. Now, Tim, I was listening to the show early on, and you said the uh, system itself was uh, self-maintaining. And uh, what did you mean by that exactly? Uh, did I say self-maintained? Um... Well, let me see. What would I mean if I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't say it. What I mean is the system is dedicated to maintaining itself. In other words, everything that happens in the system is dedicated to maintaining that system. From the tiniest foot soldier in an elementary school who mistreats a black classmate to the people at the very top. 
if you look at it, this is a collective of people that is required to keep the system. If, if, the, if the majority of black, white people were not interested in maintaining this system, they may disagree on how to maintain it, but they don't disagree on maintaining it. If they weren't, the majority were not vested worldwide in maintaining white supremacy, how in the world could it exist and operate in the same fashion no matter where you go? How does that happen? I'm not asking the question. I'm just saying. How does a system right. of, 10, of less than 10% of the people on the planet maintain itself and function in the exact same way in Venezuela, in New Zealand, in America, and South Africa? It functions the exact same way, less than 10%, controlling 90%. How does that happen if the vast majority of white people are not vested in maintaining that system? You would have pockets all over the world where white supremacy didn't exist. And you can't find one place on this planet where white people exist that white supremacy does not. That, that's probably what I meant. Was every, white people are fully vested in maintaining the system. They just disagree on how to maintain it. All right. Thank you. Because I, I, I hear uh, Gus quite frequently always saying that it's impossible for the system to just, like, miraculously maintain itself without people. So I just wanted to get that clarified, and I okay. appreciate it. And um, I'm still listening to the show, and you guys are doing great, great, great work. Keep it up. Okay. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you. Caller at 5640. 5640. Did you have a question for Pam? Yes. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I have a question. Muted. Yes, I have a question. Unmuted. I've, I've never been to Chicago. I've actually, no, I'm sorry. I have been there. I've just been to the airport. But So I just have a few questions. Um, the attack that took place on the brother and sister in the park... Um, do you know if any action was taken against the whites that attacked them? You know, I, I never heard any follow-up, but my money says no, because they were over there in the Bridgeport area, and the Bridgeport is home to a lot of the Irish policemen, Irish and whatever other ethnic, ethnic whites are over there. So I doubt it, because more than likely, at least one of those people was probably related to a police officer. Bridgeport okay. is notorious, yeah, notorious for of being a hotbed of, of white supremacist racist behavior. And and that leads into my second question. Um, I've you know, I've often heard of Chicago being highly racist, of course, and segregated. So where where are blacks, you know, as far as uh, housing, where are blacks relegated? Is it mainly the South or are blacks I mean, quote unquote allowed to live in other areas? Uh, yeah, you know, there are big enclaves of blacks on the south and the west side. Uh, black people do live, you know, north. Black people pretty much can live in a lot of different places, but most of, i say the biggest black populations uh, currently are the south and west side, and particularly even the south suburbs. But, um, you know, we, we're, we're all over, but mostly congregated in that, uh, in that area. But they're trying to move us out of that area as you speak, so as we speak now. Oh. They're trying to because they're close to the city, you know, area expressways and stuff. So they're 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 doing a lot of gentrification in the south and west sides. Okay. And then the last question is 
uh, do you remember Marva Collins? And because I understand she recently passed away, um, and I remember when I was younger, I saw the movie about her. So after her death, was there any, I don't know, celebration of her life, given the, you know, the fact that she started the, I believe, the West Side Preparatory School and made those inroads for the black students? I think she dropped off the radar. I think that her accomplishments, uh, I don't think people talked about them much. Um, I, I, I never heard much about it. Um, you know, maybe in the last 20 years I haven't heard much about her. So okay. uh, yeah, I, don't think, I don't think she probably was even on the radar of most people. Mm, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Caller at uh, 5234. 5234, did you have a question for Pam? Uh, yes, uh, greetings to you, Gus, and greetings to you, Pam. Um, yes, I had a question. One was uh, there, I've been seeing a lot of commercials recently for an upcoming show, a uh, 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 miniseries on the FX channel called The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and I noticed that they conveniently decide, decided to air it uh, beginning February 2nd of 2016. And I wanted to know, because in my opinion, um, them choosing to air it during Black History Month is almost like a slap in the face to black people in a way where uh, we've gone through all of the heroes that you possibly have in the Western Hemisphere. So now we're going to go to this particular person who has the reputation that he has and play him up for Black History Month. And I also think it's a signal to white people as far as fostering uh, more violence against uh, black males and even black females um, and using the premise of Black History Month to uh, exposed this particular film and also I wanted to know if you saw uh, there was a video that David Banner had a, an interview where he was asked about uh, his feelings on white supremacy and it was very eloquently spoken but he basically spoke to the fact of anti-blackness being the, uh, the, the engine behind white supremacy survival and flourishing in today's day and age and I want to know if you saw that video and what you thought of that too. Thank you. Okay. Uh, no, I can answer the first one. I, I didn't see that. You said David Banner? Uh, yes, David Banner. He was recently interviewed by a black female. Um, it was, I believe it's on YouTube as well. I forget what the title is. But he was basically asked uh, why, what his feelings were about uh, racism and white supremacy. And he very eloquently spoke to anti-blackness being the, the engine behind what's driving white supremacy and the strength of it today as we see it. I have to agree with that statement. Uh, like you say, I don't think white supremacy uh, is like, like a battery in there, and the battery requires black and non-white self-degradation and anti-self. I mean, without that, what would they have? They would be the emperor with no clothes. And I'm not negating any accomplishments or any of the real power that white people possess. I'm simply saying that the, the foundation of it is built on the degradation and false, false inferiority of non-white people. And if non-white people decided they weren't going to be inferior anymore, and, and that's a psychological thing. That's not a money thing. It's not a power thing. It's a psychological thing because we're 90% plus of the planet. So the only way to maintain power over 90% of people is you have to have them under your psychological control. You can't physically control them. You can't, you know, I mean, they're the ones that's, that, that's, that's actually occupying the, the lands where all the resources are. So you can't physically control them. It's a whole psychological, and that's the frustrating thing is, if non-white people woke up one day and decided, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to listen to this garbage anymore. I'm not going to watch these movies that tell me I'm inferior anymore. I'm not going to 
let these people take my stuff anymore, what would they do? They'd have to blow the planet up because there's no way they could control the planet. So it's a, a powerful mind controlling system that requires your self-disrespect and your self-degradation to keep it going. That's the only way it can keep going. That's why the interracial sex thing is pushed on us to promote this sense of, wow, look at what I got. I'm getting all this validation. But what happens the day you don't need it? Then what is the appeal of it? So the whole thing is like the, the Wizard of Oz with somebody behind a curtain pulling bells and whistles and convincing you that they're all powerful. But when you pull back the curtain, what do you see? A skinny old white man. So, you know, the mind thing is the most powerful aspect of white supremacy. Not the money, not the false paper money and the physical goods. It's about non-white people laying down in their confusion and self-hatred and allowing it to continue. I'm sorry, what was your other question? The O.J. Simpson uh, movie coming out for... Yeah, yeah, OJ. <laughs> yeah, in February, huh? <laughs> oh, that's classic white supremacy. And I do agree. I don't know if you said it or David Banner said it, but I do agree that it is about uh, increasing white hostility. And it's also about just clowning with black people, just taking this little pitiful little month, you know, and just junking it up with a lot of nonsense. So I think a lot of it's just, just plain old just disrespect. Just a typical disrespect. The thing that I would like to see happen is, first of all, there is no Black History Month. I ain't going to give me February and tell me that's my history month. Get out of here. I don't recognize that. My history goes all day. It, it's 12 months a year, same as yours. So I don't accept or even, I don't accept or embrace uh, the shortest month of the year on top of it. I don't embrace that Black History Month. I don't embrace none of that. You know, I don't embrace you setting aside some nonsense a couple of days for me talking about that's what I'm supposed to be thinking about. And so you, you tried out the peanut scientists, you know, as you call them, and some entertainers. Think about it. All they talk about is entertainers, you know, for the most part. So, you know, to me it's just such a false, it's such a false thing. It's such a false thing. I just wish he would say, listen, keep yourself, keep your history, month. We don't need it. We don't study our history all year long. Forget you. We don't need your permission to read. I was snickering. I was uh, thinking Carter G. Woodson is rolling over in his grave. Um, the person that dialed in uh, last four digits. Oh, this is another block number. Different person called in from a block number. Did you have a question for Pam? Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Um, greetings, Pam. Want to thank greetings. you for coming on and mm-hmm. for everything that you do. Um, but uh, Gus, that that piece uh, about uh, how Chicago uh, made me hate white people or something like that—that that, that I'm keen on that. So I don't know if you could send that to me or something, because it sounds like she was, you know, able to describe her environment, you know, what I'm saying in some detail, and how it was affecting her. And I think that that's that's what makes it powerful. You know, it was kind of showing some of her you know, defenses where she really wasn't, you know, really wasn't, had her had her, had her guard up or whatever, because they were saying the blacks, the blacks, and then when she, when they, you know, when she looked at them in a certain way, they, 
they say, oh, oh, not, not you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not talking about you, you know. And she has to accept that or not, you know. So, man, you know, that's that mind control. Like, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful. And I think, yes, like, is. you know, to the extent people are able to describe their environments and the effect it's, the effect it's having on them, you know, um, negatively, you know, how it's kind of fracturing their minds or whatever, you know, to observe that and be honest with themselves. <sighs> That's important, so. Um, yeah. And it got to be too much for her, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It it, it can break you down because it can, that's, it can uh, if you're not, um, if you're not able to, uh, if you're not able to, you all well, comes like with your, with your defenses, you know, like you have all those problems from your childhood and stuff, and they exploit that that part of your, you know, your your mind, how you you know you wasn't treated well when you was growing up, so you know they can just they can just tap right into that and you know make yeah. you. It's really something. Then when you get, go ahead. How, how how would you have you have you thought about that and have you seen any ways that we can uh, any systems and methods where we can get our uh, minds able and, and, and our brains are and able to accurately describe what's going on for our benefit? Well, you know, I think for me the important thing has you know that I always recommend and I'm still working on it myself, and that is educate yourself about this system. Get out of denial and, 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 you know, get out of denial. Keep an emotional distance from white people. That's what I do. I understand that we work with people. I'm cordial to everybody as I, can, as I know how to be, but I don't socialize. I, 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 I limit it to not socializing. I don't go to a lot of places where white people congregate. If I go, you know, if I go out to eat or something like that, that's one thing. But I don't go to parties and clubs and, and events. Um, you know, and I know people like events and stuff like that, so I'm not saying they shouldn't go. I'm just saying that I minimize my contact with white people socially. Because what happens is you lower your guard, and that's when you get had. Because then you start wanting to believe that these people like you and that you can forget you know, what you know to be true, and that is that you're in a system. And I think that's the danger of sex with white people. It causes you to take on a false mentality reality. Because while you, I don't care what anybody says, when you're sitting there with that white person with your arm around them, and you're hugged up in the bed, or whatever it is you're doing, you can't be wearing your war hat. If you think you can have your war hat on where you're actually in a, what I would call a conscious state of mind, I don't see how you can do it. Because first of all, you're not going to have the same conversation. Mr. Neely Fuller termed it correctly when he said the best it gets is tacky. And I think we've all had that experience where we've been around white people and we find ourselves turning false. We're saying things almost like, how did that come out of my mouth? We're having thoughts. We're downplaying things. We're uncomfortable with certain things. We don't be, we're not honest about certain things. We put on another face. And even if it's a person that we can talk to, there's still an element of falseness between both of you. Now, just take that and multiply it by a factor of a 1,000 when you're in the bed with them. They're not being who they really are, and you're not being who you really are. So in a time of war, how can you afford to have all these split personalities 
and false identities and still remain sane and productive and constructive. That's why I say maintain an emotional distance. If you're in a job where you have to socialize, limit it as much as possible. If you have a choice of who you socialize, which, which we all do, that's the one thing they can't make us do. They can't make us be friends and be bad partners with anybody. So this is the whole thing to me is the most constructive thing you can do is control yourself, is set standards for yourself, is be honest with yourself, see where you are, how much anti-blackness are you actually engaging in. Make an effort to be nicer to other black people. I'm not saying be anybody's doormat, but make an effort to be cordial. I have noticed that between black people now, there's this big distance. We look at each other like we're white people. We look at each other strangely. We look at each other suspiciously. We're not cordial. We don't speak a lot of times. You know, if we do speak, the other person is not speaking. You know, because we've internalized all this negativity and all this anti-blackness from these TV shows, mind you. A lot of it comes from this media. So I would say people need to do a self-analysis. You know, and I found, I was talking with Gus earlier today about how counter-racism, when people first embrace it, it's almost like being born again. All of a sudden you're excited and you, you want to tell everybody and you want everybody to believe what you believe. And if you're not careful, you can get up on that little pedestal where now everybody's a heathen. And I think that that's the dangerous. Counter-racism is no guarantee that you're going to be honest. The first thing you have to do is be clear about where you are. Don't worry so much about other victims. Try to get yourself straight. You know, be honest with yourself. See where you are. See how you're mistreating other black people. See how you're disrespecting other black people and vow to change that. See how you don't support the black people that you claim to believe in. For example, I have a very difficult time getting book reviews from people on Amazon. People buy the books, but they won't review it. So ask yourself, how much constructive activity am I engaging in that's helping the system to maintain itself, how much constructive engagement, I mean, destructive. So I think the first thing people can do is educate yourself about the system, get out of denial about the system, maintain your distance from white people, emotional distance, and have some self-evaluation where you're clear on what you need to work on. And that would be my suggestion. Just think about it. If one million black people didn't teach nobody else anything but themselves and got their own heads in a direction where they were headed toward understanding the system. Think how powerful that would be. And they wouldn't have to talk to another single person. If one million motivated, highly motivated, self-identified, dedicated black people decided to counter the system as individuals, how powerful that would be. So that's that's my that's that's a suggestion that I would have. Uh, hang tight, uh, nine oh nine. I'm just trying to make sure I nab uh, everybody. Uh, person that called in from blocked, uh, or I guess you're on the vote line, perhaps. Uh, did you have a question for Pam? You should be with us. Yes, I do. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Pam. Um, I'm I spent a significant amount of time in Chicago in my childhood. I just want to um, give you my theory and see what you think about it. Um, uh, Chicago has such a concentrated high number of black people in certain areas, like you said, the South side and the West side. Um, what do you think? And since, um, I guess, particularly the gangs in Chicago were more structured back in the day, they were kind of, uh, more military like, and they were trying to get into, 
uh, political realms. Um, but now the gangs have been kind of, they're all on different things. They're warring with each other more. And I think right now, being that you've already acknowledged that maybe, or I know Gus mentioned that the violence isn't, it isn't greater now. It's pretty much it's actually lower than it was in the early 90s. And I think now that they're just trying to segment, you know, to kind of separate us and kind of destroy any type of organization that might come out of the Chicago area. I think that's why they're blasting this on, on the media so much. And I wanted to know, did you agree with that? What are your thoughts on that? And also, how does this so-called hip-hop or drill music, as they say, in Chicago is uh, is helping with uh, promoting this violence in Chicago. Um, I know back in the day um, before people, there was only like one or two artists coming out of Chicago. Now these you know, these kids are getting record deals just rapping about murder. That's pretty much it. So I just wanted to know your thoughts on that, and thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it has to do with the music. The whole culture of music, uh, you know, almost everything that young black people are growing up seeing today is anti-blackness. Everything. From Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, anti-blackness in a sexual form. I mean, everything that they are ingesting is anti-black. Uh, almost everything. So the music is about deg- degradation of black life, degradation of black femininity, degradation of black masculinity. So it's a whole other element out there of anti-blackness that I don't think existed before at the level that it is now. So, um, and I do agree with you. The street gangs, when I was coming up, there was violence, but not the type of just mindless violence, you know, and there was a hierarchy. And I think what the system has done is it has um, just broken down the whole structure of the community. Because when you look at the community, when I was coming up, everybody had a father. We were, you know, I don't even know if I was poor or not. I think I was. But, you know, back then, you know, which wasn't all long ago, back then, you know, uh, people didn't, weren't 18 years old expecting to drive Mercedes, you know. Uh, So I think even if you didn't have much money, you still had a father in the home. And now it's totally different, you know, uh, the drug wars and all these different things that have happened have just broken down the community, period. So whatever the gangs come out of those communities, they're going to be equally broken down. You know, whereas gang members in the past, a lot of them have fathers. They might have had dysfunctional households on some level, but they had fathers, a lot of them. So um, I just think the, 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 the war being waged upon the black community has been uh, so systematic and so devastating that everything that comes out of our community has been distorted. You know, uh, you got educated young black people. They don't want to be with black people. That's a distortion. You know, um, you know. So the whole thing, and a lot of it is the media. I mean, media is on twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, eight thousand channels, Netflix, the iPhone, constantly watching stuff, watching most of it garbage. So the young people are just getting overloaded with garbage. And I would say to a black parent. You better take your kid away from that TV set. Don't even let them get started at an early age because it's addictive. You better pick them up and turn that TV off because you're going to have a real stone-cold anti-black person when all is said and done. You know, so this television is probably 
it almost, and, and I mean, I understand, you know, because, you know, we all watch it, most of us, but it's almost tantamount to child abuse now. That's how bad television is. It's full of evil messages, satanic messages, anti-black messages, racist messages, and white supremacy. And that pretty much sums up all the television programming. Even the commercials are full of white supremacy. So when you're sitting your kid in front of that TV set, you're basically saying, I'm going to raise an anti-black, white validation-seeking person at the end of the day. So uh, it's a very dangerous environment. And, and, the, and a lot of the gangs, the younger gang members, they're a reflection of what, this, what our community has become. And uh, in addition to uh, children, sometimes it is a great idea to get older black people away from the television. <laughs> that is always a constructive idea, as Dr. Wells, as Dr. Welsing always says. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, we've given out some great books that you could be reading. Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Suns, Trojan Horse Publications, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, The Interracial Con Game. Uh, the Beauty Con Game, uh, and Trojan Horse, Death of a Dark Nation. Uh, reading is more important than watching television. Uh, caller at 3398-3398. Did you have a question uh, for Pam? Good evening. This is such a wonderful conversation, Pam. This is Joan. And Hi, I used to call you. I used to call you in. You were first starting on Blog Talk Radio in California. I remember. And, uh, yes, yes. And I just want to say that Dr. Joy DeGroy Leary, have you heard of her? Yes. Yes. And she talks about post-traumatic slavery in, um, syndrome and cognitive dissonance. The brother asked before, you know, what are the repercussions of all of this? And so find her on YouTube and listen to her two-hour conversation about this with a black and white audience. And these people are stunned by the revelations that she's making. And what used to stun me was how could four million boars in South Africa Africa control 22 million Zulus. But, and for 50 years, apartheid was in place. And it's still there. I don't care how much they say they stopped it. It's still there. But you, you hit the nail on the head, Pam. It is an individual choice to recognize your personal divinity and to understand the importance of melanin. Do some research, read up on what melanin is, that it is the life force of this planet and that white people don't have that. So they have to be able to control the source of melanin. But if we understand the power of melanin within us and exert that force 
It doesn't have to be in an unkind way. That's what you keep saying, to respect each other. And then you also hit it on the head, the nail on the head, when you said the intra-violence in their families. That is the issue. If they treat each other... Uh, Ma'am, I just want to make sure we get everybody in. Did you have a a question that you wanted her to to respond to? She she is... Pam has addressed everything. If If they treat each other the way they treat each other, how do you expect them to treat us? So we have to treat each other well. And Pam, you are speaking it. So just put your... What's your, what is the title of your books again? That's my question. Oh, okay. Um, there, uh, let's see, the first one was Trojan Horse, Death of a Dark Nation. The second was Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. The third is the Interracial Con Game. And the fourth is the Beauty Con Game. And they're all on the uh, website Trojan Horse or RacismWS.com. That's probably the shortest uh, uh, link. Uh, yeah. So Thank it's, you. Good to hear, it's good to hear from you. You know, I always, uh, you know, read your emails. And I will check out uh, Ms. De, uh, uh, Ms. DeGroy, I think. De, 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 Dr. DeGroy. Dr. DeGroy. DeGroy. I will check that mm-hmm. out. Because so, I really do want to learn more about melanin. Because there must be something awfully powerful about it for them to want to kill everybody that's got it. Uh, Dr. Uh, Joy DeGruy-Leary, she also has been on the cows uh, repeatedly. Um, met her at the White Privilege Conference in uh, 2010, although she doesn't do uh, talk about uh, melanin per se. Hers is, uh, her book is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. I think that was the first point that uh, Joan was, was touching on. But yeah, she, three-time guest uh, on the program. Uh, the caller at 1388-1388. Did you have a question for Pam? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, how you doing, Pam? Um, Hi. I, just, I think I forgot my, I kind of got my question kind of muffled up. But I'm, I'm born and raised in Chicago, and um, I read your book, uh, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, and uh, Interracial Con Gang. Um, I was wondering, what's your thoughts on uh, blacks getting together in, in the system of white supremacy, I, I see white supremacy as, as a way of a struggle for resources and 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 uh, economic uh, struggle between resources and wealth. Um, got my question kind of mixed up a little bit. Um, in Chicago, you noticed well, we had a lot of um, we gonna call it uh, public housing. With the public housing academic in Chicago, Section Eight and all that, do you ever think that black women can depend on the black man and come together knowing that they don't see the black man struggling for wealth and resources. Cause in Chicago, I know you have, and I say all the projects just alone, that's probably at least 25,000 uh, housing units right there for the women and the women depend on the government to supply them with their food, housing, health, things like that. Do you think that there can be black, true black love when you have the woman actually, depending on the system, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, you know what? Um, can it be true? Black you know, love? Yeah. yeah, I think I know well, what you're saying. You know, can can the cause, woman... Cause, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, 
because my, my, my thing is I see a lot of women who want to be with the man, but they figure they, they kind of see the black man as he doesn't want to struggle for the, he doesn't want to fight for the wealth. And that's why, that's how I see racist white supremacy. They want to control the, the wealth and resources and they'll do whatever they need to do so they, they can survive off the wealth and resources. That's why they want to, you know, dominate and terrorize us for the wealth and resources worldwide. And with, I'm kind of, if, if you get my, my point, do you, do you see what I'm saying? The, the women, they depend on the system to take care of them because they see the lack of, you know, um, how I'm trying to put it, the, the, the men, black men trying to get the wealth and resources. Yeah, I think, I think this they, whole system. They can't depend on us. They, 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 really, they, don't, they can't depend on the men, but you think that we can come together. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, it, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I think, uh, I think that the system is set up so that the men and women uh, don't see each, you know, don't, uh, don't have any cohesion, you know, very, a very minimal cohesion. So, but I think, in all honesty, we all are dependent on the system. But I understand what you're saying about the women. Uh, I think it is difficult. It does make black relationships, respectful relationships, very difficult when the women don't see the men fulfilling the role that they think men are supposed to fulfill, which is that provider and protector. And the men feel demeaned and resentful because they are not respected as men and as providers and protectors. And that many times the women appear, at least on the surface, to be in more dominant positions than the men are. So, but this whole system is set up, and that's why the, the second book came about, was this whole system is set up to keep the black man and black woman at each other's throats. You know, uh, and it started from slavery, you know, where the men weren't able to protect. Even though many of the slave men attempted to protect their women and children, you know, there was a lot of resistance. You know, they try to make us think from these old crazy movies, and we just sat around uh you know, the, 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 the cabin or sat around the cotton field just singing songs and stuff and not having a problem. There was a lot of resistance, a lot of slave resistance, a lot of slave sabotage. But the whole thing was set up to destroy our confidence and respect for each other. And can we come together? I think it has to start with each individual deciding that they're going to be allies instead of enemies, which each group, the male to join to subconference, press number of subconference from one to four, or press star to return to the conference. Hmm. Uh, that was strange. Let's see. Wow, that was just wacky. Uh, my <laughs> apologies, Pam. Uh, please continue. Well, I'm glad we didn't get disconnected. Um, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think the whole system is, and that's what we have to understand is. When we look at each other, we're looking at each other through the, the lens of a white supremacy system, which distorts everything. Can we come together? I don't know. But I think if we, don't, if we lack an understanding that we're in a system that pitted us against each other, and if we don't stop blaming each other for being victims of the system, you know, you got people blame, we got, we're blaming each other because one person has a job and another person doesn't. One person has a college degree, another person doesn't. If we understand that no black woman controls anything that creates a problem for a black man, not housing, not income, not jobs, not police brutality, not bad food, 
not bad environments, not bad schools. Black women control none of that. Black women. Black men don't control the system. Black men don't control the educational system or whether you get a job or whether you get the help that you need. But I do think that we could do better by each other. That being said, we could do better by each other. We could do a lot better by each other. We have misplaced priorities as a community, and that includes me as well. I'm not excluding myself from that judgment, but we have misplaced priorities, and that all comes out of the dysfunction of being in a system that has degraded us from the day we're born until the day we die. But I think it's important that we stop blaming each other for the existence of the system and understand, start understanding the system and be nicer to each other. Because if we're not going to be nice to each other, we're not going to have any allies. <laughs> you know, when, you can, when we come to a, a point in this country where we're going to really need to depend on each other, and I'm going to tell you right now, that time is coming. How are you going to depend on each other when you don't like each other? How are you going to depend on each other when all you've been is nasty and mean to each other? And I don't mean everybody's nasty and mean, but you know what I'm saying. There's a lot of not-so-nice behavior between black women and black women between black women and black men, between black men and black women and black men and black men. There's a lot of not-so-nice behavior going on. How are you going to have allies when you don't like the other person, when you don't like each other? It's an, that's my biggest concern about coming together. You can't come together with people you don't like. And then you've got to ask yourself, why don't I like this other black person? Why am I sabotaging this other black person? Why am I not helpful and considerate to this other black person? You know, it's time for some real self-revelation. That's all I'm saying. Not looking at somebody else, looking at yourself and seeing how you are either working for or against the system of white supremacy. Mm. Person at that. Uh, 9532, did we get your question? 9532. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Well, hello to Gus, the callers, and to Pam. My question for Pam on the topic of relationships, how do you suggest that we interact with black people who are engaged in sexual relationships with white people? Oh, my goodness. You really, you really, <laughs> you really got a good one in there. Uh, that's the question <laughs> I've been asking myself for a very long time because I have it in my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a real, real, real I would have to say that's one of the toughest questions that I could have been asked. And I, you know, it's, it's so hard when it's family because you can easily decide not to socialize with people that are in those relationships when they're not family. Okay, but when they're family, it's very complicated uh, because, first of all, you know, it's, it's been an infiltration of the family. I think it's almost like a Trojan horse that's been set loose in our families. And, you know, it it disrupts the family, particularly that particular branch of that family, because it's not going to bring the white and the black family sides together. It's going to create distance because the children, more than likely, are probably going to identify with one side or the other. And what I have found is if the white spouse is present during the rearing of those children, they're going to be white identified, no doubt about it. So uh, it it just really devastates the integrity of the black family. But, you know, but what, what do you do? Do you ostracize that person that brings that into the family? That's, I could say do that, but that's not going to happen. Um, I would say probably 
not maybe spending a lot of time around them. Because uh, the person that's in a relationship to the point where they're married to the person, that person's pretty much done for, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when they start, uh, you know, get, get to the point where they're marrying white people, you can pretty much, in my opinion, write them off. You're not going to say anything that's going to correct that mindset. Now, they might later on come to some epiphany on their own, but you're not going to convince them of anything while they're laying in the bed with that person. So I don't waste any time having no conversations with them about anything uh, that has to do with white supremacy because I found it's just a waste of time. only thing I can say is you can perhaps, if you can and if you choose to, minimize your contact. Um, and the most important thing is you can't control anybody else. Just make sure that you don't fall into that. And that's about the most, that's about all you really have the power to control anyway, is your, the choices you make. Uh, the one thing I would say, too, is when they have children, please do not talk about good hair and light skin and light eyes and pretty eyes around your brown-skinned children. Please do not treat those children any differently. Any better, no better and no worse than you treat the children with two black parents. Because I have seen this too many times where the biracial child walks on water and the little black kids are watching and their self-esteem is being devastated. So if you're going to have that in your family, make sure you do not make a fuss over those children. Uh, the oh, I was just going to add quickly. Uh, I think it's also important to remember uh, that they are victims. Uh, that I think at least sometimes I see a tendency to look at the black person in these tragic arrangements as though they are the transgressor. It is the white person. It is the white person. It is the white person that is the transgressor. That is the terrorist that is going to be disrupting uh, that black family, that black household. I just further terrorizing and confusing that person um, to keep in mind that that person is a victim uh, and being thoroughly victimized in one of the worst ways uh, and being uh, sexually involved with a race soldier. Uh, I think that's very important to keep that in mind. Um, the person that called in for uh, last caller, 4950-4950, did you have a question for Pam? Greetings to Gus, Pam, all the listeners and the callers. I have a question. Um, I was recently told about a website called 23andMe. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. Um, this website, it's, it's, what happens is, um, you order a packet, they'll send, um, a laboratory, uh, um, tube and a swab, you swab your cheek, send it in, and then it's supposed to give, like, a genetic breakdown, um, but, like, say, for instance, if you're, um, like, 8% European, uh, 16%, uh, South African or something like that. I was thinking about doing it. I wanted to know if anybody ever thought about it or um, would it be something good to do to, like, get a better understanding of, uh, like, my, my history? You know, uh, I had a friend, I think, that had talked about doing that. I'm not sure if he did it. I think he may have. But his big concern was he didn't want to give them any information to put into a database about his genotype. But I think it's so easy probably to get that anyway. <laughs> because most of us have been to a doctor and taken blood tests or whatever it is they use. So I think that would be interesting. Uh, I've actually thought about it. I don't know that I'll ever do it, but I think that would be something interesting 
to to uh, to know, you know, what part of the world and you know where you originated, you know what you know what makeup you are, and you know, I don't I don't personally don't see any harm in it. All right, yeah, because I I actually thought about it. And um, that was one of the things that, that did cross my mind, um, giving the, the government a little bit more information or something else about me. But um, at my job, they do something where uh, for, um, it's called health awareness, where we have to, like, get um, our blood tested for, like, um, high sugar and stuff like that. They do that, like, once a year. Every, um, we have a few people come out at my job. And I was wondering, like, well, if they wanted to do something, they could take my DNA right then and there and, and right, use it. Right. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's the way I looked at it, too, is that they really want your DNA. It's not that hard to get it. So if that's something that a person is curious about, I don't really see, I personally don't see the harm in it. And it might be enlightening as to where you came from. And it might even give you a little bit more interest in understanding where you came from. Okay, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate it. Oh, sure. Uh, I can give out a recommendation reading material. Uh, Dorothy Roberts, she's a black female uh, who's done, uh, in my opinion, superb uh, counter-racist scholarship. Uh, her book, uh, Killing the Black Body, uh, is outstanding. Uh, she's a three-time guest on the program. She has several books, uh, Killing the Black Body, uh, Shattered Bonds, which is, I mean, uh, I mean, it's top-notch research, but I mean it is a no-punches-pulled analysis of the foster care system, child welfare system, uh, and how racist it is uh, in terrorizing black children. Uh, and then I think her most recent book, uh, Fatal Invention, uh, and she talks about the history of uh, kind of scientific racism, and she has a whole section of her book is on that, that industry of getting people to send in uh, genetic material, and they can tell you about your ancestry. She talks about skip... Uh, Another cowbell. Uh, Skip Lewis Gates, Dr. Skip Lewis Gates uh, program where they do this. They get all these stars on and she articulates uh, a lot of skepticism uh, about these sites for a variety of racism. And at its core is racism, white supremacy. But, yeah, her book is uh, Fatal Invention. Uh, and and right on time, she is a former professor at Northwestern, uh, the Every time we had her on the program, she was at Northwestern, but then she switched. Now she's at uh, University of Pennsylvania, but she has uh, outstanding scholarship. And that's one of the like last chapters in the book, uh, A Fatal Invention. That's the name of it if you want to uh, check that out and get more in, uh, information. But I remember we talked about that when she was on the program in 2011. We talked about that, and she went into detail with her suspicions uh, about you know why she would encourage folks to be be leery, <laughs> do some, do some research and, and have some, have some suspicions. Uh, this is the land of Tuskegee. So <laughs> suspicion is always warranted. Um, mm -hmm. we, uh, we did our three, uh, and pretty much covered, uh, everything I wanted to cover. Uh, I will again encourage, uh, if you get any of the books, make sure you write a review because they are, uh, helpful, uh, in encouraging other folks to check out the book uh, and even pushing your book, uh, higher up the rankings at Amazon. So if you get any of the books, uh, write a review. Uh, it should not take you know a long time. This is not anything that has to be massive. We're not talking about a thesis. Just something right to the point. Quality points. If if something stuck out, if it was constructive, that I don't think is asking too much. And we need more people to be active. Uh, any final thoughts you want to leave listeners with as we wrap up? Yeah, I think we should. Uh, the, the final thought would be, you know, pick a day of the week. And just be nice to a black person. 
just just take two days a week and change it from one day a week to two days. Just do something nice. Just and I'm not saying be mean to white people. This is not about white people. Be nice to a black person. They're struggling with something to get through the door. Open the door. If you make eye contact, smile and say how are you. Uh, you know, just we gotta get this thing flowing. We gotta create some goodwill between us each other. Because I tell you, with all the, the negativity that's out here, it's very difficult to stay positive. And we just need to be nicer to each other. That creates an energy and a synergy between us. It, 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 it creates more spirit, a spiritual level. The, le- the level of spirituality between us now is very low because of the media, because of the stuff that we ingest on a daily basis. All this degradation and foolishness that we ingest on a daily basis has lowered our integrity toward each other and so we got to raise the integrity and even if the person doesn't give a positive response don't be discouraged you know just try to maintain the fact that you're going to be kinder to black people you're going to be nicer to black people and by doing so you actually be a nicer to yourself and i'll just leave you with that racism ws.com racism ws Dot com. Visit the website. You uh, can read the blog posts. You can see the books. You can purchase the books. Leave a comment. Uh, I think she's very responsive with email and what have you. Uh, but definitely check it out. RacismWS.com. Always constructive to uh, have Pam visit with us. No tons of folks. Uh, always uh, really appreciate you dropping by to uh, share. Uh, constructive info and, and your views on uh, racism, white supremacy, what we can do to solve this problem. I uh, hope folks were able to navigate the day constructive. Um, <laughs> we were talking about uh, weighty topics for this to be a quote unquote holiday, but this is what we should be doing. Uh, we have serious problems uh, just recalibrating the way that we invest our time and energy. Uh, we should be back in 24 hours tomorrow, our book study session. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. I'm so excited to uh, read this book because white people have been talking about it so much. It just won a national uh, book award uh, for one of the best books of the year. It was on President Obama's reading list. We've talked about this repeatedly starting off tomorrow. And it's very short. I think we might be able to finish this up in two sessions, so we will be done quickly. But starting tomorrow, uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific and the compensatory call in this weekend, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Thanks for everyone calling in and I hope you got some constructive information that you can use, reflect on, will help you sharpen your understanding of white supremacy, what it means to be white. If you have any questions, comments, gripes, drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com listener supported counter racist radio uh, visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com uh, paypal button is in the top right corner if you are not into paypal drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested seven years in February, seven years uh, that we've been on the air, hopefully helping folks get a better understanding of what racism is, how it works. Thanks again to everyone. Uh, I, oh, man, especially this weekend, sobriety would be 
best. Uh, you know there are going to be tons of Daniel Holtz claws out on the road. Man, you do not want to be intoxicated behind the wheel. Uh, I say every time we wrap up, buckle up. You want to do everything we can to minimize the likelihood of any problems with enforcement officers. Buckle up and no alcohol. I don't care if you're going to be the driver, passenger, even a pedestrian. Uh, white people are constantly looking to make problems for black people. Let's do everything that we can to minimize that. That being said, and certainly you do not want to be around intoxicated white people even during the horror day season. Uh, that being said, uh, to wrap things up, <laughs> we will give one of the quotes uh, about the city of, of Chicago uh, to kind of lead folks to think with, again, just keeping everything that's happening in context. Uh, this is Beryl Satter's book, Family Matters, Family Property, excuse me, which has a lot of uh, just very detailed information about white terrorism. Uh, she also is a former guest on the program, uh, but she was uh, talking about her white father, racist suspect, who was commenting on the terrorism in Chicago. And he wrote, uh, the people whose lives are being lost on the south side due to gun trauma and due to economic. Oh, wait a minute. Wrong quote. Wrong quote. So I was looking at the wrong paragraph. OK, make sure we get it correctly here. Her white father, Beryl Satter, her white father wrote exploitative sales were draining black Chicagoans of one million dollars a day. This is these uh, contract sales in Chicago where they were exploiting black people. They wouldn't allow them to live anywhere they wanted in Chicago. They'd be restricted. And so they would buy white people would buy property was worth maybe nine thousand dollars and they would charge black people like twenty six thousand dollars for it. So. They are doing this to the tune of one million dollars a day. Beryl Satter, she goes on, she says uh, to, to illustrate the violence of white property owners and lenders. Her father wrote, it was like people who like to go out and shoot lions in Africa. It was the same thrill. This is white people talking about fleecing black Chicagoans that they compared it to going out and shooting lions. Wasn't that the big story earlier this year? The white man going to Africa and shooting uh, the lion and white people were so outraged about it that that's what it was like to be a white person in Chicago. The economic terrorism that went on for decades that helps inform why Chicago looks the way it does today. Beryl Satter, Family Properties, excellent material to check out. Reading is more important than watching television. That's it. Context of White Supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.